This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Happy Thursday morning to you. Uh, welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. This is the program where we give you the latest update on everything you need to know about life to make it through this crazy thing called life. Today will be no exception as we celebrate Chili Dog Day. Mm. No way, James Taylor has a song called Chili Dog? Yeah, it was a big hit. Uh, Not with vegetarians, but still a big hit. Yeah, I'm sure the vegans and the vegetarians hated the song. Oh, I love his voice. This is the voice of my childhood. See, with a voice like this, you could almost picture a chili go- chili dog going down smoothly. Uh huh. Just yeah, like chili just running down your cheeks. Yeah, yeah. As you lean over and kiss your loved one, mmm, a little chili <laughs> on her face. It's Chili Dog Day, folks. Today is the day celebrated. The history of Chili Dog Day is a mysterious rise of the chili dog. They uh, have names that vary depending on which region of the country you live in. Um, for example, uh, they in America, they, there's the Texas Wiener, also known as Texas Tommy, the Texas Hot, or just plain Texas Chili Dog. If you're from New Jersey or Pennsylvania, uh, you know, they actually use the name Texas Chili Dog. No. Yeah, they do. Really? Mm-hmm. They have their own. In Michigan, they just call it the Michigan Hot Dog. Well, that's... That's kind of boring. Mm-hmm. It's a steamed hot dog with a meat sauce, which is called Michigan sauce. Michigan sauce. Yeah. I think I didn't have a good enough breakfast today. You know, I like the – chili dogs are one of those uh, foods that I would like to enjoy more. Yeah. Like I wish I liked mustard. Uh-huh. I wish I liked chili dogs more, but maybe it's because of the big mess. Was that your chili dog? Yeah, it, Fell on the studio that is floor. A, that is a wet chili dog. Our kids even like them. We we have them on vacation. We always make them on vacation. But our kids, they're start, they they don't tend to like them like day two or day three. Well, I think you uh, hit upon something very key there. Vacation. It's probably not something you should eat on a daily basis. Why? What have you got against chili or dogs? Well, neither one of those things is healthy for you. Mm-hmm. Your point. Okay. Next uh, thing we're going to talk about today is uh, the historical roots of student debt. Did you know that we used to not pay to go to college? Really? Yeah. Like in about 1900, 1910, you wouldn't pay because you would only go to school to benefit the country. Well, people today still don't pay. They just have mounds of debt. Mounds of debt. Huge mountains of debt. And in fact, uh, guess who we could give the credit to for creating Bernie the, Sanders? the legislation that led to paying for colleges and school debt? You won't believe who. Nelson Rockefeller. <gasps> Thank you to the billionaire, richest man in the world at the time, I think. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. All of the all of the students in debt now appreciate it. But then they still sell you the line, but it's the fastest way to get out of poverty. 
except for the millennials now that will never get out of poverty because they're not <laughs> making enough money because their degrees don't have the same pull. I thought so, it was because they couldn't get off their phones. Well, that too. It's that too. Our uh, guest today is going to give us the historical roots of the student debt crisis. We're going to go on a little history tour about debt, college, and uh, how it used to be, which I think will open up a lot of uh, minds and thoughts about what we should probably be doing. And then Bernie Sanders made it really popular in the last election, right? Um, that we ought to make it free for everyone. And in fact, they're trying it in New York, but I don't know how that's going. They're probably finding out it's going to cost them a lot of money. <laughs> oh, well. We'll get to all that fun. Plus, of course, headlines, some of the empty news that uh, we do, MT News. We are first on the scene, fifth on the facts, and we bring those facts to you whether you need them or not. The MT News Team, first on the scene, fifth on facts. With an apple bite. Because we were not sponsored by Apple, but we love to eat apples. And every time we say apple, there's a bite. Now, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country we should be paying attention to? This is apparently just happening. I'll mention it now. Iran has launched a rocket into space carrying a satellite. Okay. So, there you go. Thank you, Iran. I'm not sure... Just, well, I, re- I was reading that. I'm like, huh. it's, good. it's good to know because if somebody's up there thinking, whoa, whose rocket is this? Yeah. Now they know. It's now they know. From More space junk. Yeah. Uh, Representative Steve Scalise, discharged from the hospital Wednesday, will now begin inpatient rehab. A statement from the hospital he was in in D.C. confirmed the Texas Republican has continued to make progress after he was critically wounded during the baseball practice in June where the guy walks up with a gun and starts uh, shooting everybody. That's great news for him. It did postpone a, uh, a hearing about gun laws. Which day. may, you know, that may have been a blessing. Could be. Who knows? Um, other news. Foxconn, the giant Taiwanese electronics manufacturer, a major supplier for Apple iPhones, will open a 20 million square foot plant in southeast Wisconsin. Really? The company announced on Wednesday. Over four years, the company will invest $10 billion to build the plant, which could employ up to 13,000 people. We'll make LCD paneled screen displays. The Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker said the state will award $3 billion in incentives for the project with the package needing approval from the state legislature. He also said he will be able to be the largest ergonomic development in or economic development in Wisconsin history. Is it ergonomic as well? It could be ergonomic. Depends. We'll <laughs> see if good. anyone gets any sort of carpal tunnel out of the whole situation. <laughs> However, Yes. Foxconn has been talking about shifting some manufacturing to the U.S. for several years with little to show for it. In 2013, for example, they announced plans to build a $30 million plant in Pennsylvania that has yet to be built. Really? So we'll see if they actually ever break ground. The intrigue. Might just be, you know, like the last one. Just, they were talking. Um, NFL star's diamond earring, valued at more than $100,000, is now presumed lost at the bottom of a murky lake in Georgia. (laughs) Really? Atlanta Falcons star uh, wide receiver Julio Jones lost it when he hit a boat wake and took a spill while jet skiing in Lake Lanier, about Holy 50 miles outside cow. Atlanta. He resurfaced, but his pricey earring didn't. Drivers have been, or divers have been searching the lake bottom, hoping to capture a flashlight's reflection off the jewelry amid old trees submerged since the man-made lake's creation in the 50s. Seriously? So far, no luck. They're digging for diamonds. Probably don't go swimming with your... Yeah, I know that's my rule. Just a life take. I always take the bling off. Other football news. What? Lucky Whitehead. We talked about him a couple weeks ago when his dog was stolen. Yeah. And he he suspected it was an inside job. Right. Right. Now that may have been a publicity stunt for his friend who was a rap star, rap 
rapper performer that had a mixtape and wanted some publicity. Now, Lucky Whitehead's uh, first name hasn't provided uh, precedent lately, though he doesn't bear any fault in the most recent matter. Whitehead, whose real name is Rodney, just so you know, okay, uh, who used to be a wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys, was cut from the team on Monday during training camp after a case of mistaken identity in a Virginia shoplifting incident. Really? And Prince William County, Virginia cops were now admitting they've discovered that they that he, this wide receiver had nothing to do with the crime. A man busted at the scene for stealing items at the uh, at a convenience store on June 22nd, was questioned by police, and verbally provided his name, date of birth, and social security number because he didn't have ID on him. All of that information matched the NFL wide receiver Lucky Whitehead. Whoa. Right? Busted. The suspect was released, but when he blew off a court hearing for the case, an arrest warrant was issued with Lucky Whitehead's name on it. Oh, boy. After the news came out, Whitehead was released from his employer. So the the Dallas Cowboys cut him from the team. Yeah. With a team exec alluding to past incidents. Okay. So we decided it was a time to go in a different direction. At a Tuesday press conference, Cowboy coach Jason Garrett was asked about the mix-up. And released uh, and the release, but Garrett simply repeated ten times in the press conference in different variations. We made a decision; we felt it was in the best interest of the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, so he just kept saying that yeah. over and over. We and made over. a decision. Yeah, it's in the best interest. So meanwhile, Whitehead tells the Dallas Morning News that he was blindsided. He goes, "Let's not sugarcoat anything. I was pretty much called a liar." He adds, though he notes his teammates believed him. Wow! Right. So mistaken identity. Warrant issued for your arrest. The team finds out. They fire you. They cut uh, you. You're gone. gone. We've made a decision for the team, the best interest of the team. And they say it's based on bad behavior and that this last case of bad behavior was the final straw. Yet he may not have done it. And he's not involved at all. Yeah. He was at training camp. This guy was in Virginia and, you know, he's stolen not, information. He's not that little whitehead. Wait right. a minute. I was only kind of half listening. All I heard was Prince William was arrested for stealing whitehead cream from the Dallas Cowboys. That's it. Yeah. No, you got it. Nailed it. Okay. Moving on. The, uh, the other problem is the Cowboys are uh, trying to pull this we're trying to keep a moral culture here yeah yeah we're trying not to have lawbreakers on the team no lawbreakers whereas their star linebacker is awaiting final ruling on an nfl investigation into domestic abuse allegations well but yeah but he but scores he's the touchdowns. Star. yeah and they've had linebackers who've punched people and had you know well that's see that issues. that is in the best interest of the team right the the other situation of the innocent whitehead not in the best interest right so you have the moral hypocrisy but it's fine it's the nfl yeah. Are Welcome you, to the NFL. Are you a fan of jawbreakers? Uh, depends how it's broken, hmm. quite honestly. I mean, I personally don't like them. I like my jaw intact. I think you're thinking of a different kind of a jawbreaker. Probably. Uh, did you see this um, story of... Where'd it go? Don't you hate it? Um, it was really good. I can tell. Let's go right back. Captivating. To this is the news. Coca Cola is getting replacing Coke Zero with yes. a new drink. With what is it? Coke Sugar Zero or Come Coke on, that's No such Zero? A silly name. Yeah, zero zero sugar. sugar. There you go. Yeah. Coke Zero will be, will be replaced with a new sugar-free drink called Coca Cola Zero Sugar. And apparently, Coke Zero and Coke Zero Sugar taste exactly the same. I, I'm going to bet it's the exact same thing. It's Seems just a rebrand. Yeah. Seems like a waste of ink. Got a new box. Zero sugar. 
Like, why do we need to highlight that? Zero sugar, no calories, or added preservatives. Half the fun. Uh, apparently, they did some marketing and found out the people switched the names around anyway, so they just decided to switch. Yeah. Like they, they call it – they or, or they people didn't realize that the zero was referring to zero sugar. Well, it, it, the weird thing is Coca-Cola – Zero sugar, the name, has two redundant words. You don't need to put cola in there. Just Coke Zero. Right. Boom. People know what Coke that is. Coke Zero. Boom. Yeah. I mean, except for like the drug dealers are like, hey, we got Coke Zero. You just saved the millions of dollars on I know. And that was free. That's free advice. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think, why mess with a good thing? It's doing well in 25 market countries. So... Why not? I let, mean, let it go. They said they've tested it, so they're not going to yeah. have another new Coke problem here. Well, do you remember? Yeah, Coke Classic versus New Coke. I mean, that yeah. was a, that was horrible. That threw a lot of people off for a century. Yes, that rocked my my household as a child. There were <laughs> lots it? of complaining and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, didn't well. your parents almost separate over that? <laughs> it is. Coke <laughs> I don't know Classic. if we went that far. We were having Coke Classic in our house. Coke will never be where they need to be until they come out with the twenty four pack of Cherry Coke. Mm. Or but, even or even better, the Costco, I think it's like a 36-pack of Cherry Coke. Boy, that's a lot of Coke. Hmm. Um, by the way, I uh, that might taste really good with a chili dog. Hmm. I mean, if you want to just throw that in there. I think they're both acidic. Oh, no, they are. They're, they're both acidic. Um, here's uh, – okay – Here's the here's the key to life. I've I figured it out. Children need to go to school. They need less time off. Okay. Um, because my children seem to kind of be wasting this month. The whole month of July. The whole month of pretty much. So I would say maybe mid July, right after the fourth, all the kids need to go back into school. Okay. What are they doing? Vegging. Well, it's hot. Why wouldn't you want them to eat their vegetables? That's no, great. No, not they're not vegetabling. They're just vegging, and it seems like they're losing they're losing brain matter and muscle mass apparently, and muscle mass because they just are sitting there. But isn't it like it's and I it's mean, hard? Ninety five degrees outside. Well, yeah, it's... but parents are at this stage where okay, this has got to end. And you guys may your kids may be so young that you don't feel that, but. Older kids need to be in school. The only reason I know the Andy Griffith show existed was because it was 95 degrees outside in July. That's right. So I stayed in as a kid and we're like, oh, yeah, there it is. And we well, watched that, right. the Brady Bunch. And, yeah. and then look at how you turned out. I mean, I'm not going to watch that on purpose at any point in my life. But, I mean, what are you going to do? It's 95 well, degrees. That's a great show. Yeah. So I, I'm just wanting to start a revolution that is is so basically put them back. Would this extend the school year or would it be the same amount of time in school you just want them starting earlier? I which... say extend it. Okay. Maybe give us one vacation. week and get around Christmas, one more week maybe. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe do like a week off every other month and that way they won't have enough time to really get in a rhythm of laziness. Yeah. Just one week at a time. Yeah, yeah. Let's just, yeah, let's slowly ease them into the laziness river. That lazy river. So are you guys with me is what I'm asking. Are you with me? Will you back me oh, on sure. this initiative? You know how much money that would save on daycare? I mean, I think we – I'm trying to – exactly. I'm trying to model this after our Congress. Oh, yeah. I mean, they take a lot of recesses. Yeah. I mean, big recesses. I, I saw something. They have under 60 days of 
60 work days left in the calendar year. Holy cow. Because of time off. Which is what's making all of their legislative agenda really difficult to get through because there's only 60 days left. And yet they're the ones that create the agenda. They're the ones that no. create those rules and they're the ones that have no agenda. And that's why when they come out, they're like, we're going we're gonna to work all of August. Like, okay, so am I. What do you want? And instead, people now are just looking for an earring of an NFL football player. Well, it's important. It's $100,000. By yeah. the way, most yeah. disappointing part about going into junior high, no recess. No, that was disappointing. That was rough. But Chili Dogs. There was PE, so you had this sort of awkward moment. Yeah, that awkward moment where... You had to change your clothes. You're like, whoa. Everybody, everybody showers. <laughs> uh, no. I don't want to shower, Mr. Johnson. <laughs> anyway, okay, I'm starting a revolution. Kids need to go back to school earlier. Uh, NFL stars need to either commit a crime before they're actually right. kicked off a team. Make sure it's the guy, not just someone using his information. Wouldn't that be amazing if the NFL said anybody that is charged with a felony, I guess they'd have to be convicted of a, of a felony. Really? Convicted? You want to go that far? Well, you'd have to be convicted. Well, there was the Baltimore Ravens running back a couple of years ago who, like, punched his girlfriend in the face, dragged her out yeah, of he an convicted? elevator. He wasn't convicted. They just had the video. Oh, yeah. I would say so if you have video. <laughs> that's a kind of a yeah, yeah, no-brainer. But the problem is because you could wait for years yes. waiting to get rid of some of these. But I think in the end, we just you can't have an NFL player that's committing crimes. That'd probably be a good – well, I don't know. Is he a star? <laughs> Even, if you got an all-pro running back, that's a commodity. I don't know. You may want to you know, hold back And it tells us right there, if all of a sudden you've you've got a $150,000 earring, yeah. then you probably are making well, yeah. too Who, much money. Have you seen Julio Jones play? That man can no. catch anything thrown at him. That's cool. <laughs> He's worth every cent. Speaking of catching stuff, I caught a cold. Really? I did. I think it was the cold you had two weeks ago. I didn't have a cold two weeks ago. What was okay? Then it was that tuberculosis thing that you had uh, two weeks ago. I, I hurt my leg yeah. yesterday. Does that have anything to do with it? Maybe. You know, we also learned something about Prince William. He needs to get his act together. Yeah. Stop stealing Stuff. whitehead cream mm-hmm. Great from point. the NFL. Prince William, we don't have to tell you twice. Uh, we're going to um, now go to a wonderful interview. Actually, we'll take a break, then go to an interview with the um, on the topic of the historical uh, roots of the student debt crisis. What, since when did we start paying for school? And is it not in the public interest that we get as many people to college as we can? Is that not good for America? Why is there an economic model that's now holding up our schools? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, student loan debt has become the second largest type of personal debt carried by Americans. And uh, besides leading to depression and anxiety, student loan debt slows down economic growth. During the 19th century, college education in the United States was offered largely for free. 
Everyone benefited when people chose to go to college. And because it was considered a public good, society was willing to pay for it. But what caused the change in how we pay for college today? Here to explain is Thomas Adam, a professor of transnational history at the University of Texas at Arlington. His current research focuses on the topic of college affordability. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This um, is such an interesting topic for me. I still carry student debt uh, from getting a PhD, and it's it's actually maddening. This idea that you are you know you you could become more depressed, more anxious. It's real because you have this money hanging over your head, and apparently that's that's a relatively new uh, concept of paying for our college tuition. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, as I uh, wrote in, in my piece for the conversation, uh, throughout the 19th century, actually up to 1910, uh, college education, and I only looked at college education leading up to a BA, so not graduate education, but college education leading up to the BA, was largely tuition-free. All colleges and universities provided tuition waivers, which covered all or even more than tuition charges. So going to college in 1880 or 1890 was by far not as expensive as it was today. And if you take uh, cases like the College of William and Mary, for instance, uh, even in the 1920s, half the student population at the College of William and Mary had tuition waivers, so they didn't pay anything Hmm. for attending the college. Boy, what uh, today? What is what are the what's the average student in debt? What's the what's the average level? Uh, if I remember correctly, the average student debt is something like thirty nine thousand dollars. But again, that's just an average, and mm. uh, many students carry much more, depending on whether they went for a BA and MA or a PhD, and depending on how much scholarship aid they received, how much student loans they took out, and which university they attended. Uh, with regards to the level of tuition fees. And so, I mean, roughly the numbers say about 14% of the total population in the United States, 44 million people um, carry student debt. And I'm assuming if if they're carrying, you know, an average of $39,000 in student debt, that means that their money is not going back into the economy. It's paying off student debt. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, this is not just a problem for individual Americans uh, who struggle with paying back student loans, but this is an economic problem because all of these funds, all of these financial resources are basically channeled into paying back student loans while Americans are unable or many young Americans are unable to buy a house, buy a car, start a family. So this is a general social problem. Hmm. And... Meanwhile, many may also then have degrees that don't necessarily even pay enough to pay off their debt. That's correct. I mean, the idea, the notion that a college degree somehow leads to careers which are well-paying, that a college degree is for basically uh, reaching a level of financial well-being is not true for many Americans who have struggles with problems finding a well-paying job after college and uh, a job which would allow them to participate in American society and a job which would allow them to repay student loans quickly. Hmm. It's it's interesting because it's not even just uh, it's not even just that now students are paying for it, but the costs of tuition are actually going up dramatically as well. 
So not only are we paying for it at a level that we weren't paying in the 1900s, but we are also paying more for it and maybe getting less for it. That is correct. Uh, If you look at the rise of tuition over the last 200 years, um, tuition rose very, very slowly in, in some universities, not at all, for 50, 60, 70 years. If you take Harvard University, for instance, from 1850 to 1910, there was only one tuition hike. Wow. And it jumped from $75 to $150. So there is a very stable tuition landscape up until 1910 when things begin to change. The the problem we have today is a problem which is created only in the last two or three decades when tuition grows so fast by, I think, more than 200% and completely out of sync with the overall development of prices. I think prices grew by 55, 56%, so tuition is four times. Ah. The increase in tuition is four times the general increase of prices in the overall economy. Wow. And yeah, so it's been a bad 40 years or so. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's it, it, 40 years. Right. It's, think about it that, that huge growth, and then, uh, and then the economy turns, so jobs are more scarce. It's harder to find a job. And then you have all of these students carrying debt without the job that, that's backing it, plus other economic issues. But maybe the bigger issue is another point you brought up in your article um, for uh, from public good to personal pursuit. It seems that there was a, p- a paradigm shift somewhere in the game where we used to become educated for the public good. We wanted to become have teachers, community servants, people that would be giving back to the to the country. Um, and now it's kind of turned more for personal pursuit to just enrich ourselves. Yes, that's correct. Uh, that paradigm shift occurred sometimes between 1910, 1920, 1930, so the first uh, part of the 20th century, uh, when suddenly uh, university administrators, big donors like Rockefeller, Harmon, and others uh, brought in the argument that tuitions should be uh, should be covering the education costs of a student, and students should pay for that by taking out student loans. And that occurred because the social composition of a student body changed. Mm. We have to remember at that time, very few Americans went to college, received a college degree. We talk about 5 to 8% of the general population. And in the 19th century, college uh, students came mostly from middle-class families who went to college to become high school, who became, uh, to become teachers, engineers, ministers. And because these jobs were valued as important for the advancement of society, society communities were willing to pay for this, even either by providing college education tuition free or by providing enough financial aid to make it virtually uh, tuition free for these students. Hmm. In the 1920s, um, that social composition of a student body changed from middle class background to upper class background. Uh, Some Contemporary critics looking at Harvard, for instance, complained that Harvard College is socially more exclusive than a country club. Hmm. And so students went to college no longer to obtain jobs which were considered important for society, but college education became a social education. And especially with Harvard College, we see this because while tuition 
remained stable from 1880 to 1910. It's $150 a year. The expenses calculated for each student to spend on social purposes, club memberships, sports uh, uh, clubs, and so on, go up from 50 to $200. So by 1910, Harvard College students paid $200 for participation in social events and $150 for tuition. <laughs> wow. It, so it is a, a social, social club, experience. right? Yeah. It's a social club. You go there because you want to meet the right people, the right people who will be your friends, your colleagues in later life. It's the old boys network. Mm. Boy, that's interesting because now we sit in a state of affairs where uh, tuition costs have been on the rise exponentially, and you're probably, in a way, less in a club. Now they're offering, you know, distant learning, distance learning. Um, you can go to night classes, executive programs, all these different programs, and it may not even be the club benefit anymore either. So you might not get, be getting, you, and they might be diluting a little bit of the education and diluting a lot of the social club. No doubt. I mean, uh, the American University and college is far from being an exclusive social club today with more than 60% of the population attending college. So the, the population, the student population after World War II has changed Fundamentally, the character of university has changed fundamentally. But the interesting thing is that that notion of a college degree as a personal pursuit survived these changes. Hmm. Um, but we still see a college degree as something which is an individual thing. And because it is individual, the individual is supposed to pay for it or at least as much as possible. And that is fascinating because yeah. there, there is there is a disconnect here between reality and perception. And the example I always bring up is take a high school teacher who goes to college to get an MA degree to teach at a high school and gets a salary which makes him barely able to pay the student loans. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, to tell that high school teacher that he did this for his personal pursuit, for his personal interest. I mean, no one goes into high school teaching for making a lot of money. Right, right. Well, and then they would, you know, now there's laws, I guess, where they get tuition uh, reprieves for their loans if they go work in in the school systems. Or, but but it's after the fact, right? It's not it's not as you're going. So you have to carry your debt burden and your fear of those accumulating numbers. Um, you know, throughout your entire program until you go teach for your 10 years, you're still carrying this burden of debt. Plus, it just seems like it's in the social best interest of everybody to get everybody as educated, making as much money you can because they can pay more in taxes. They push the, the economy. That's correct. But that's exactly the point. In the 19th century, there were programs, for example, of a college uh, of William and Mary I brought up earlier. Yeah. Uh, the students who received tuition waivers had to promise in return for, right. for, for tuition-free education that they would teach for two years in a Virginia high school. So they basically paid for their college education, the services to the community. And... There are still some programs like that, Teach for America, things like that, which exist today. But today, these programs are at the margin, and, and they affect very, very few students. In the 19th century, these programs, and not just in Virginia, but across the country, 
where at the center and they benefited a significant number of his students in colleges across the country. Even, even Massachusetts had a similar program where students could attend Harvard College to become high school teachers tuition-free by promising to teach two, four, six years in a high school in Massachusetts. Hmm. Boy, and it does. I think it changes It changes the whole game. Then it's this free market economy, and then now you have universities popping up that are for-profit uh, that are maybe seriously just looking to earn money for their stock uh, investors and their, and their, their board. Uh, Thomas, let's take a break, come back, and continue this discussion. Let's find out, too, where you think it'll go in the future and what it looks like down the road. Will uh, this push from Bernie Sanders continue for free education? Um, I guess at least in public education, public universities. We'll continue the journey, folks, trying to understand the historical roots of the student debt crisis. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. Uh, today we're talking about the historical roots of the student debt crisis in the 19th century up into about 1920, uh, 1920 um, from about 1890 or so to 1920, school tuition at a university was free. It was for the best interest and the betterment of society. We would just educate everybody to become teachers, uh, you know, maybe doctors and the like, and um, pastors even, ministers, and that was good for the society. Then, 20s, 1930s, they started realizing, hey, especially, by the way, the donors to the universities, the Rockefellers, the Harmons, decided, hey, we this isn't fair. They Somebody else has got to chip in here, so let's start charging people. And it changed school as we know it today. Now we have 44 million people, 14% of the American population carrying student debt, student loans, which is now impacting our economy, uh, a lot of people's ability to move on, to buy a house, to start a family. It might be possibly why some of these millennials might be holding off on marriage, slowing down. They got debt to pay off. And why get into more debt uh, by having a really expensive wedding? So joining us to talk about it is Thomas Adam. He's a professor of transnational history at the University of Texas at Arlington. And he wrote uh, a wonderful article that we're citing, From Public Good to Personal Pursuit, Historical Roots of the Student Debt Crisis. Thomas, again, thank you for your time today. Yes, thank you very much. Um, now, talk about you're, – you're a transnational historian. Um, and so I'm assuming you could probably give us some pretty interesting insight into what's happening transnationally when it comes to student uh, loans and how they pay for student uh, how they pay for educations in different countries. How does the United States fare to other countries? Yes, um, I look not just at college affordability, student loans, tuition in the context of the United States, but within the setting of different countries and the best. Uh, I can uh, best I know is the case of Germany, which we can uh, compare to the American situation because in Germany there was a political push about 10 years ago also to introduce tuition payments for students at public universities. 
compared to the United States, where the tuition introduced at German universities was very low. We talk about 200, 300, 400 euros. So this does not compare yeah. with the tuition charged at any American college. But this attempt very quickly failed because in contrast uh, to American colleges, which can still offer quite significant financial aid, there's nothing comparable in the German system. And this is one of the things we can learn from that. Um, tuition only works if there is also scholarship support um, or some, some type of, of student loan support which enables students to pay for tuition. So in Germany, the attempt to introduce tuition at public universities lasted four, five, six years, and then it was basically repealed in virtually every part of Germany. Hmm. How, however, there's one, one other aspect to this. While about 95% of all German students attend a public university, there are also 5% which attend a private university. And uh, there is, for instance, and these private universities are basically at the margin, at the, uh, at the margin of German society. They are very specialized. And one of these is, for instance, the Bucarius Law School in the city of Hamburg. And that law school uh, accepts a total of 400 students, uh, which go through a four-year course of training. Tuition for this uh, university for this law school is, if I'm not mistaken, 48,000 euros. Wow. For four years. Oh, for four years? For four years. Oh, wow. Total. Yeah. But it's an interesting comparison because you can go to law school at any public university. Yeah. For, for free. free. And then you have that law school, which in a system in which 95% of all students attend a public university. In this system, this law school offers the same, maybe a better quality education for a price tag of 48,000 euros. As a comparison, the average annual income in Germany is 33,000 euros. Huh. Yeah. So Amazing. Um, it's, it's, it's an enormous amount. Um, so there is, uh, there is some limited attempt of having tuition... Uh, education with which tuition is charged, even in countries as Germany, where we have a general perception that higher education is free. It's, it's a two-class system, basically. Hmm. And it's a very minor aspect of German society, but a minor aspect which is often, often overlooked. And I think we shouldn't do that, because uh, we don't know how this will develop over time. And what will happen down the road, 10, 20, 30 years. So really, it ends up becoming, I guess, even in Germany or here, it's, it's, education is really more about a class social a system and keeping, not necessarily keeping people, but uh, putting people into different gradations than it is about maybe education. It might well be, and, and this is why the, the point I tried to make in, in, in my article that uh, so far, the discussion about tuition, about student loans, about this economic crisis, all about numbers, it's all about money. But I think we need a discussion about the background to this. We really need a discussion about the significance, the place of higher education in modern society. How do we value it? How do we see it? 
what do we expect of it, how do we see the students, and what is the contribution of these students to society? Is it just paying back their loan? Is this just a financial transaction? Or do we see public edu uh, higher education as a public good or a personal pursuit? Because as long as that stays, as long as we consider higher education a personal pursuit, something which is only individual, then there is an argumentation for student loans and tuition. Mm. But if we are willing to consider that it might be something else, then we need a discussion about how should, how should it be paid for. Right. And, and let me add one, one more thing, because paying tuition has historically not been the dividing line between private and public universities. When Stanford University was opened in 1891, it offered tuition-free education to every citizen of California for almost three decades before tuition was introduced. In contrast, state universities have charged tuition, low tuition, in the course of the 19th century. So this discussion does not just affect public universities, it affects all colleges. Mm -hmm. It really does. And I mean, I, we're calling and doing this show from Brigham Young University that is a private institution. And we manage here at BYU, because it's subsidized by the LDS Church, we manage to keep tuition fees lower than um, public universities. And I think quality is higher, just as good as, as public universities. Um, and then again, like you're saying, there's a lot of uh, scholarship support. The kids are on campus and can make money a variety of different ways in serving the campus as well. I mean, there are models that work. Um, it's just, I, and I've seen personally with clients of mine that have have basically bought into the, the, the myth, or not the myth, but the reality that you can make more money by going to school on average, getting a degree, and then being sucked into these competitive companies that are vying for your money and um, are doing it as a, you know, for-profit university. It's, it's a scary thing we've, we may have created here. And like you're saying, I think we need to have more conversations about it. Yes, yes. Uh, and we need to move beyond the, the conversations, just money, just finances. We need to move to a conversation about the nature of higher education. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Wonderful uh, insight, Thomas. Thank you for your work, and, and keep it up. Keep giving us the history and driving the discussion behind student debt and the crisis behind student debt. Uh, we appreciate it, really. We need to learn, folks, and and be more open to what's really happening out there. I mean, I get it. You don't want government to to pay more for things, and I get that. And yet some things are bigger than they may appear. Like, you may keep people stuck in certain economic stratus if you're or strata if you're not careful we'll take a break we'll come back continue the journey and uh, do a little coach's corner up next it's my house come on because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner play ball welcome back friends you know, as we talk about uh, education, I, I'm i telling you, I've been quite blessed. I had uh, a mom and a dad, neither of which uh, graduated from a university. Um, I think they both may have attended a semester or a quarter or two. But the thing I think that happens to a lot of parents when they don't graduate 
And for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, we've been hearing the importance of education. Get an education. Obtain all the education you can. Parents have a weird guilt that, you, you know, you need to go to school. You get your kids. You got to go to school. You got. You really got to go to school. So I think the generations before my generation, I'm 48 years old, those generations pushed school a lot. And um, and I, and it was interesting because my parents that didn't go to school ended up having uh, three of their four children get college degrees at a master's degree or higher. So we took it seriously. Now, my parents would always read that. And I don't know that I've ever met anybody that reads more than my mother and my father. They both uh, would read, you know, 10 books a month and uh, very well read, very well um, very literate, very healthy people. Here's what's happening, though, that I'm seeing as I work at a university now and interact with a lot of younger generations. There's so many other ways to learn. And college uh, education and, and universities themselves are losing a lot of trust in the world because, A, it's an institution. But, B, they've been increasing costs for at 300% growth in tuition um, over the last 30 years. So it's creating more and more problems. And I wonder what happens going forward. So I would just suggest to all of us parents that we, that we maybe teach our children the principle of learning, teach our children the principle of, um, of trying to understand, of growth, of development. And it doesn't necessarily have to always be rooted in universities. It doesn't have to always be rooted in schools. It could be rooted in reading books. In, uh, it could be deeply rooted in using the internet as a better tool for research and understanding. It could be having a family dinner where you ask better questions of one another and you have an engaging conversation. Don't tie learning only to a university. Teach your children the principles of learning of growth, of questioning, of curiosity. These things, I believe, will serve them long-term. I have a son right now that could make uh, more money than probably any of my kids that are in college um, simply because of his talent set and what he's learned on the Internet about running the Internet, editing for the Internet, music for the Internet. He just he's, – he's got it. And there's not – I'm sure – I'm not sure there's a lot of things he could learn at a university um, except those principles. But just because you go to a university doesn't mean you get those principles of learning and curiosity and uh, quality and values. So be careful. Teach the principle. And then it, you can still push going to school, but make sure that they're, they're trained up in the learning principle and in the being curious principle and in respecting everybody. Why not raise everybody if we can? Why not make universities free to everybody so we can raise our entire society to a higher level So next generations can have even more understanding, more insight, more light. Just a a little coach's idea. That's uh, hour number one of the program. Next up, we will continue the journey. We will uh, give you some insight into how to know if you're actually hungry, when it's time to stop. That's next hour. You won't want to miss it right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is 
The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number two of the program. If you missed the first hour or any of our past episodes, you're going to want to go download the podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, on TuneIn. Go to BYURadio.org. You can also download the BYU Radio app if you're so inclined. Um, there's just a lot of ways to listen to this wonderful program. We're also on Morse code. We do Morse code and we do flag signaling. Uh, right. In fact, you're going to leave soon and go do the flag signaling. Your days in the color guard really helped yeah. out with that. Yeah, that was – and so I'm still loyal to, the, uh, to flying the colors. You were part of the union, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Color guard union? Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it the CGU. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Hey, we got a great program for you today. We'll be talking about how to know if you are actually hungry. How many times have you had that conversation with your child? We're like, I'm starving. And you say, you don't even know starving. You, you don't know hungry. You haven't ever missed a meal. And then there's, you know, all that shame that we put on them. My kid, it's, I'm so thirsty. Like, Really? He goes, yeah, can I have some chocolate milk? That's not a thirsty drink. <laughs> I'm so thirsty. Can I have a plate of nachos? <laughs> yeah, that'll, uh, that'll teach them kids. It's, uh, speaking of nachos, it's Chili Dog Day. It's the day we celebrate the dog smothered in chili. Those are both in the same food group. Nachos, mm. chili dogs. Yeah, yeah. Same food. See the segue? Yeah. It's beautiful. Uh, again, you can smother it in Michigan chili, in Texas chili. In chili, chili, Philly, chili. 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 Hey, did you eat any chili in chili? I was in Argentina, and no. Okay. Two years, I never had a bowl of chili. I also never saw a, um, a carpet in a home. I saw one home that had carpeting. Really? Yeah. It was amazing. I just would throw myself on the ground and just took your shoes off. Yeah. Wheel your toes around. Nice. I didn't even know the people. They're like, sir. Who were you? Sir, can you leave? All uh, the homes that I went into had carpets on the wall. Yeah. That's got to be weird. Did you yeah. just lean against them? It kept the, the, the place nice and warm. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Nice and cozy. Um, by the way, Argentina, a little side note, um, only time I've ever been bitten by a dog with no teeth. Was it a chili dog? It was a chili dog. Yeah. Because it was a cold winter day. And he, he, he just grabbed on my leg with his gums. He gummed me. But it hurt. It hurts to be gummed. Today we will also get into some empty news um, as we cover uh, mystery meat is falling from the sky apparently in Florida. You won't believe, like sausage. But isn't sausage basically mystery meat? Yeah. Okay. But it's falling from the sky and just landing on a, a family's roof. Lots of it. Where is it coming from? Frozen. Well, if it's frozen, just put it in the freezer. You're good. Well, but it's mystery meat. You don't, you don't just eat any meat that lands on your roof, right? But we'll go to the store and buy sausage when, in effect, that is mystery meat. Well, so whether it falls on your house or you buy it at the store, it's all mystery meat. But it's how it's delivered that might matter more. Oh, okay. Right. It's mm-hmm. frozen. If, it just, if it's delivered at night and you wake <laughs> up and, hey, who put this meat on our roof? We'll be talking about Santa. that story. Santa's back. Um, my dreams came true. He gave us sausage. Also, uh, we're going to be speaking with one of our um, contributors. Pluto has got a big announcement. 
He's our inner uh, – what do we call him? Our interstellar uh, contributor? I, I'm not sure. We we toyed around – we toyed with expert, but then I think we very quickly dismissed that. Well, he was an expert until they they removed his status as a planet. Now he's a dwarf planet, so that kind of – he lost his credibility. But today he's got a huge announcement – and we've got a line hooked up with him, so we're going we're gonna to talk to Pluto. That's got to be annoying for him trying to go into a work and his access has been taken away and his card won't work. Totally, totally. But, you know, what do you expect when you're demoted? I'll, in fact, if we have time, I might even ask him about that. So we'll get to that great uh, interview plus, of course, uh, how to know if you're actually hungry or not from the professionals. And more empty news, news you didn't even know you needed to know. But first, let's get to the real headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? One of two men convicted in the first of several trials stemming from a 2014 standoff led by renegade rancher Cliven Bundy against federal authorities in Nevada was sentenced on Wednesday to 68 years in prison for his role in the armed confrontation. So one of all, one of the big group. There's like 17 guys. But not, not Cliven. Not Cliven yet. Yeah. And he still hasn't paid his ranching fees. So we'll see where that goes. 67 years. He's getting 68 years, this guy. Wow. Says Gregory Burleson, uh, 53 of Phoenix, was found guilty in April of eight felony counts, including charges of threatening and assaulting federal officers, obstruction of justice, interstate travel in aid of extortion, and firearms offenses related to a crime of violence. Yeah. Plus all the backhoe. Trenching. Well, that was different. That was the Oregon oh, that set. Was the that was That's a whole right. different this group is the of other people. One, yeah. yeah, this is the other one that happened earlier. The uprising at the Bundy Ranch near Bunkerville, Nevada, 75 mm. miles uh, northeast of Las Vegas, grew out of a dispute in which federal agents seized Bundy's cattle over his refusal to pay fees required for grazing his livestock on government land. Yeah, right. Burleson was the first of 17 defendants from the Bundy Revolt to be tried, convicted, and sent to prison. According to court documents, Burleson told investigators, Yes, I said a lot of crazy things. I am ashamed of them, actually. Looking back at them, it's like, wow, obviously I shouldn't drink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so eloquent. Yeah. Put, that, put that on a meme. Yeah. It sums it up, right? That's right. Don't drink. Don't drink or you're going to and probably pokey. Probably don't draw your automatic weapons at federal yeah. agents. That's, a great That's probably point. another good step. Great point. On, te- on TV cameras. I mean, it's all <laughs> documented. Amazon is secretly developing a new healthcare technology as part of a program called 1492. According to CNBC, really, researchers are reportedly testing virtual doctor visits and electronic medical records. The Seattle-based team is also looking into health-related software for existing hardware like uh, the Echo and the Dash One, which are some products oh, they, they wow. have out there. So they're getting into medical, medical records. Yeah. That's interesting. A- Amazon is posting job opportunities for a secretive team under the keyword a1.492 and characterizing it as a special projects team. Amazon did not respond or comment. Interesting. Just going to be like Kofifi. Could They're be. the only ones that know about it. Uh-huh. Yeah, could exactly. be, could be. Um, escaping from Rikers Island, New York, prison is a two-step process. Flee your jail and then somehow make it off the island. That's the hard part, yeah. getting off the island. Authorities say a 24-year-old inmate managed to step one, but not the all-important step two, ah. according to the New York Times. It appears... This is what happened. Guards took six inmates from one of the island's nine jails out to a small exercise yard Wednesday evening. Five of the inmates distracted a pair of guards as the sixth hopped the barbed wire fence. Nobody noticed. It was until, what, 7.30 p.m., head count. Uh, They looked back in and found that there was one guy missing, so they shut the place down. Uh, When the breach discovered authorities, uh, they shut down traffic for to and from the island, effectively ending the inmate's shot at freedom. Authorities found the inmate identified as a burglar in Naquan Hill about 2.30 in the morning. His whereabouts were not revealed, so they didn't get a lot of detail about how he did it, which is smart because you don't want to tell other inmates how to right, escape. Yeah. 
Uh, swimming across the East River to the mainland would be all but impossible, though inmates have made it out by hitching a ride on a bus and, in one case, on a garbage truck because there's one road in and one road out. How far is the swim? It looks to be about a mile, at least. It's kind of an Alcatraz situation. Interesting. That, it's the Hudson, so it's gross. They ought to How make a they... movie out of that. Hmm. How did they decide... How did they decide who was going to be the one to escape? Yeah, there were six guys and one well, you, guy decided no, you, to go. You draw straws. Is that what it is? Yeah. All right. I mean, that's what I hear. They probably they probably fought for it. Did he win or lose? He probably won. So oh, okay. he, he clearly wasn't a Boy Scout because I think in order to get your swimming merit badge, you have to swim a mile. Yeah. But so. he may, you know, he's also probably out of shape. He hasn't been mm. able to swim much lately. I don't know. Hmm. And finally, how much time do you spend checking your phone for emails, texts, or social media updates while at work? Oh, all my time. All your time? Yeah. You're doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. A survey of professionals by staffing firm Office Team found that office workers squander an average of 56 minutes a day or nearly five hours a week using their mobile devices for non-work activities at the office. So that's an hour a day. Add that to another 42 minutes a day on average spent doing other personal tasks, and the average employee could be wasting more than eight hours per work week on activities unrelated to their job. Younger workers, those under 35, rack up an average of 70 minutes on mobile devices, 48 additional minutes on personal tasks at work each day. And then they also found out 58% of office workers surveyed said they use their personal devices at work to visit websites that are banned or blocked by their company. Oh, wow. But their bosses haven't really caught on yet. Well, with only 39% of managers saying they think that that happens commonly. This is 68% of men frequently use their cell phones to access blocked websites in the office compared to 43% of women. Well, it's because the management, they're not watching because they're all um, doing the same thing. Yeah, they're over there. Yeah, they all have phones too. So eight hours a day, we all waste. No, or eight, eight hours, hours a week, week excuse yeah. me. Oh, I know. Eight hours a day is right on for my schedule. I mean, I work right. 14, 12 hours a day. Yeah. Probably more than that. You got all those snaps to look at. Yeah. Yeah, 12 hours a day. And so, I mean, eight of it. I mean, then there's a nap. Mm. You got to eat three times. Then all your Instagrams. And then my Instagrams. You're, I mean, pretty, you're pretty high on the Instagram. Those Instagrams don't answer themselves. No. Man, alive. Hey, falling meat mystery. Um, if you happen to be in Florida, you might, be want, you might want to watch out for this. This is crazy. A Deerfield Beach family was woken up by a loud noise Saturday morning. Travis Adair says it sounded like thunder. The actual cause was less meteorological. The family found two packages of frozen Italian sausage in the yard and another three on the roof. The packages containing 15 pounds of sausage in total were marked with the name of an Alabama land clearing company. But the company claims the sausage is a mystery as to to where it came from. I thought possibly it had fallen from a plane, Adair's wife, Jenny, says. I thought possibly it was something to do with a drug deal maybe, you know. Maybe they're, maybe they're like trying to sneak sausage, like really awesome so they go Alabama right, sausage. They in. go, mystery meat on my roof, it's a drug deal. Yeah. Okay. I mean that's, that's like the movies, right? I maybe don't know it's which, like a yeah. German shipment of brats. Oh, you okay. Know? Yeah. Right. There we go. You know. There's a plausible. <laughs> but what do you do when the mystery meat shows up and it's frozen, by the way? So is it frozen because it came from a freezer or is oh. it frozen because it flew from this incredibly high yeah. altitude mm. trying to avert, uh, you know, the FDA? No. Right. The, the, is this illegal mystery meat? Yeah. Has it, it somehow not been checked? Is it somehow from? Well, apparently an, it's from Alabama. Oh. Isn't it? Yeah. 
think it was Alabama. So oh, okay. it's not – the mystery isn't what's in the meat. But isn't it though? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean that's always been the mystery. Okay. By the way, uh, what do you do? What, do, you, do you eat it? I mean it's frozen. Mm. I guess you don't eat it. Do you? You don't know where it came from. It you came from the sky. No, you can't eat it. It was frozen. Maybe it's manna from heaven. It could be. In in case in, in I mean, lean we're sausages. Gonna, we're going to put together a whole plot by some German organized crime syndicate to move uh, illegal meat sausage from Germany to the U.S. Yeah, manna from heaven would be just as plausible a reason that you know that fell on your house. Well, I mean, it, it's I don't I don't think God would you know make you sausage you know really sausage links. All right, you go ahead. You limit God. Do what you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like – by the way, 15 pounds of it. That's a lot. No wonder it sounded like lightning or thunder hitting you. Um, okay, you know, we're going to do something that I uh, I get I, – I don't always want to do. It's – but, you know, remember Pluto? Uh, Mo, Mo Pluto? Mo Pluto. Right. Mo is a – he's a famous dwarf planet – that's a reluctant contributor to the Matt Townsend Show. Anytime we have a question about our galaxy, about our solar system, we bring in Mo, Mo Pluto. Um, but we've had a kind of run-ins in the past. He and I sometimes, you know, sometimes we don't get along. And so he's back today. He, he called and let us know that he has a huge announcement, huge. And uh, we're going to bring him in now on the show. Uh, Mo, are you there? Mo Pluto. Are, are yeah, you? thanks for having me back, Matt. Hey, good to have you, Mo. Um, you know, we recently mentioned the Mars-sized planetary mass object that was lurking out in the solar system. Our good friend, uh, you know, you you made no secret of your dislike, your distaste for that uh, mysterious orbit disruptor last time we talked. But uh, now you're back with us today. You got a big announcement for us, apparently, right? So what, what, what are you going to announce here on the Matt Townsend Show? Well, you know, I was hoping to make this announcement on one of the top radio or TV programs, maybe even, you know, Dr. Phil or whatever. I, I, okay, here's the announcement. Okay, yeah. That's... I will be fighting this mass object in a no hold barred cage match. Whoa. You are going to fly. Yeah, really? That, I mean, that's got to be a huge cage, right? Because, I mean, you got to be able to get you in that cage. It's going to be huge cage match. It is going to be huge, Matt. And, uh, you know, the IAU didn't do anything about this guy. NASA didn't do anything. Heck, Bruce Willis didn't even do anything about this guy. So I decided to step in and take care of this giant massive gas myself. Hmm. Well, you know your gas. Um, here's the question, though, Pluto. Uh, are you are you going to do this? You know, you know, in alignment with the International Astronomical Union's good side. Are, are you are you doing it with their you know blessing? Listen, man. I ask why why it is that you do whatever it is you do. I don't give you a hard time about your doctoring. Okay, now let's leave both. All right. Wow, we're we're kind of losing him. Uh, sunspots. Yeah, sunspots. Okay, okay. Uh, I, I heard that if you win this fight, the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, has agreed to reclassify you as a planet. You will you will be moved from being a dwarf planet to a real planet. Is that true? Oh, they've got to let me back into the club, Matt. You know, as you mentioned, this guy's messing up the orbits of a planet. 
he's got to go. So, so the IAU has actually sanctioned this event. Well, you know, I, I've got like a verbal agreement with the IAU. There was a sort of a loose handshake. A hand, a handshake. Now, Pluto, uh, you don't even have hands, right? I mean, you're just kind of a you're just kind of a massive, gassy, round. Uh, uh, listen. You know perfectly well what I mean, Matt. Let's not get hung up on the wordage here. As we both know, I'm a fighter, not a scholar, okay? Um, so I, I didn't even know you were a fighter. You know, how many fights have you had? Are you, are you, have you done this before? Uh, I didn't hear that last time. Uh, have you fought before? I, I'd never seen you as a fighter. Kind of, you know, more whiner than fighter. Uh, you know, um... I fight, I fight, uh, I fight hard, and I fight to win, and, and we're going to go out there and give it 110 percent, and uh, yeah, that's what we're going to do. That's great, uh, man! You sound like a pro fighter. Um, so, how are you preparing? Or do you have a do you have a trainer? Do you have somebody you're working out with? Yeah, I'm going to be hitting the gym pretty hard with my trainer uh, Iris. Oh, really? He, he okay? Interesting. Um, not familiar with him. Is he your corner man? He, he's a fellow dwarf planet like myself, and like myself, he's a he's a former fighter. Maybe you've heard of some of his fights, um, the mayhem of the masses. Mm-mm. No, I haven't heard of that one. No. Planetary punch out. Mm, nope, not that one. Dwarf planet death match. No, not ringing any bells. Um, speaking of which, we probably need to ring the bell here. Uh, end this interview. Um, Seriously? Well, we just have other, Matt, more maybe more interesting events that we could just Matt, and talk about. I blocked out 45 minutes for this interview. My bus won't even be back this way for another two hours. What am I supposed to do with all this extra time? Well, um, Dwarf Planet Boy, I might go hit the gym. Maybe uh, stop by Galactic Gym. I mean, let's face it, you got a lot of work cut out for you. Um, you gotta you got to lose that waistline. Moving up from Dwarf to regular planet. Hello, Pluto. You there? Mo? <sighs> Lost him. Mo Pluto. Well, we wish him the best of luck. May he rest in peace. I have a feeling he's not going to fare very well in that battle. I don't know. He just sometimes makes me mad. Up next, we're going to talk with, uh, with Dr. Michelle May about how to know if you're actually hungry. How to get attuned to your body and when to, uh, what really are your hunger cues when it's time to stop stuffing the pie hole? Interesting stuff straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer by understanding when to stop eating. You know, babies always know when they're hungry, right? They let you know it by crying. But how do you as an adult recognize if you are hungry? Michelle May, author of Eat What You Love and Love What You Eat and the founder of Am I Hungry? Uh, by the way, amihungry.com, the website, is uh, is an expert in mindful eating programs. She's an MD uh, with that is also a recovered yo-yo dieter, and she's here today to help us sort through our own hunger and to recognize our signals. Michelle, thank you again for being with us today. My pleasure, Matt. Great to be with you. This is uh, – my wife has been hitting me on this issue forever where – 
she always asks me, like when I'm about to go get seconds, she always asks, are you really feeling hungry? <laughs> are you needing more? And she really just wants me to check into my body and, and, and hear and listen to my, what my body's telling me. Is, are we just not very good at this as humans? Well, we're really great at it when we start out. I mean, just as you said, babies know this instinctively. They know when they need fuel, and they let us know, too. But it seems that the older we get, the more likely we are to forget how to identify those reasons we eat. There's so many other reasons to have great food, right? Yeah, it tastes so good. And you might not get it again for a while, that type of food. Because we live in such a scarce food environment, right? right? I mean, yeah. It's funny the stories we make up about food, about, about not getting it again, or maybe I won't have time to eat later. So we make a lot of fear-based decisions about our food that have nothing to do with what our body really needs. And so that drives us in our abundant food environment to eat food that that oftentimes we have no physical need for at all. Interesting. Now, because uh, I have a lot of like evolutional, evolutionists on, a lot of psychologists with evolutionary psychology, and we would always say, well, yeah, your body is wired to just consume as much as it can. Is that true? Well, no, not actually. I mean, most children, when you observe very young children, they will stop when they've had enough. I mean, I can really specifically remember a time when my daughter, we had just had dinner, and one of her friends knocked on the door and brought over a little plate of cookies. And she was so excited, and she looked at them, and she set them down on the table and ran off and played. I mean, she she just didn't care about it. But as an adult... Oftentimes, we will eat that food even if we're full. So we just have to get back in tune to that ability to notice the difference between wanting food and needing food. Mm, Boy, that's probably a huge distinction. How do we discern between the want and the need? The, The first place we start is pausing. I think this is part of the challenge is that so many of us eat for mindless and emotional uh, reasons and states that we're not even in tune with what's happening. So the question, am I hungry, is really a reminder to pause, just as your wife was trying to yeah. do. That, that isn't usually as effective when somebody else tells right. you to do it. But if we can internalize that memory of pausing before we reach for that food or reach for the second portion and just check in. Not, not, not with uh, the, the uh, intention to not eat it, but to truly check in. And here's a, a good way of thinking about it. If you were going to drive your car a long distance and you hopped on the highway and you saw a gas station over on the right, would you automatically pull off the road <laughs> right then and fill up? Right. No. Probably not. You'd check your fuel gauge. And so pausing to ask the question, am I hungry, is really just about checking your fuel gauge to see where you are to make a decision about whether this is the right time or not. That is such a great metaphor. And we really do. And you then even, you may notice, you know, you're running lower on fuel, but you also know we've got another 30 miles to the next town, so I can make it that long. Part of it is we're just, we're almost on autopilot, aren't we? We're just, we're flying the plane, but no one's really paying attention. That's exactly right. And that's also true when we start eating. So even if we mindlessly make the decision to eat, we then mindlessly consume the food. 
And what we know about that is that it's not nearly as satisfying to eat food when we're checked out. And you'll know this if you've ever, if you've ever wanted just one more bite of something because you didn't pay attention to the other 32 bites you took, <laughs> or if you eat to the point where you're really stuffed, that probably is a good indicator that you weren't really paying attention either to the food or to your body as you were eating. That's so true. So, I mean, I guess part of this is um, somehow being more mindful. And you're saying that can happen when you're fi- feeling the need to get up, create a little pause, and, mm-hmm. and then and, and kind of just ask yourself the question, am I hungry? Uh, is there, are there other things? What, I mean, I, I assume we, I hear a lot that if you eat slower, you're – and you tell me if this is true, is the cue that our body is hungry really delayed a few minutes? So by the time we're engorged, um, you know, 10 minutes later, we'll feel engorged. Is there a delay? Yes. I think for most of us, there is a delay. For me, it's about 20 minutes, 15 Hmm. to 20 minutes. So eating more slowly not only allows me to catch up, but it also allows me to savor the food. And, And frankly, when you slow down, you can actually get bored with eating. I mean, that's really? part of the problem. And people will say, you know, gosh, Dr. Me, it's really hard for me not to eat while I'm watching TV because I get bored. Well, that's because eating itself is boring <laughs> to a certain extent, unless your body really needs it. If the food isn't holding your attention, there's another sign that you're not really needing it. And one other thing that I really like to think about doing, just to keep us checked in because our habit oftentimes is mindlessness, is to create some speed bumps. So certainly pausing to ask, am I hungry or am I still hungry can be a helpful speed bump. Another one is just to create either a physical or imaginary line through the middle of your meal. That doesn't mean you're only going to eat half. It's just a reminder that when you get to that line, you're going to pause again. And just take a couple of minutes to check back in. Notice what's happening in your body. Because sometimes we will start eating and then not stop until that plate is clean, because that's what our parents taught us right. to do. That's so it's so important true. to really check in again. So you could actually delineate, create a line in on the plate, or just know, okay, after I eat this, I'm going to take a break. Take a break and check in again. And by the way, for all the parents and grandparents out there, you know, again, our children are born with this instinctive ability. And so we really need to let go of those outdated messages about eating all your dinner or you don't get dessert or cleaning your plate. We live in an abundant food environment now, unlike perhaps you know, many, many decades ago. And we need to stop teaching children to eat more food than their body is really hungry for. So true. Give us some more of the outdated uh, things that we do as parents. Like, well, in you know, in Africa, they're starving. We guilt. We create a lot of guilt around food. Exactly. And isn't that ironic? Because those children are still starving. Yet here, we've had <laughs> much more food than we actually need because of this misperception that if I eat my food, I'm somehow helping somebody else or don't waste food, or don't waste money. You know, th- this, is a, this is a common challenge because in our environment, you can get 
pretty much at any restaurant two meals, even three meals for the price of one. And so if we take those outdated messages of not wasting food or eating all our dinner to get dessert or cleaning our plate, we're going to eat more food than we need. We have huge portion distortion in our culture. So going back to this idea of, well, am I hungry or am I still hungry before we consume the rest of our food can help us return to our more instinctive way of knowing when we've had enough rather than having to rely on weighing or measuring our portion sizes, which for most people isn't a sustainable way of managing your eating anyway. Hmm. It's so true. Is there? It seems like a weird correlation also is happening between food and weight. Um, it seems like more naturally the baby was never worrying about its weight. It was just worrying about its nourishment and its its food intake. But now we're so focused on weight loss, weight gain, and the yo-yo diet. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a really big problem because what happens is because of our evolutionary need to feed ourselves, we, we developed that biology during a time when food was scarce and unreliable. And so we have these really, really specific mechanisms that cause us to seek food, think about food more, be hungrier when food is not readily available. Now, when you go on a diet or you're thinking all the time, oh, I shouldn't eat that or, oh, that's bad food, it can set off those same psychological and physiological drivers that cause you to eat. So that's why so many people, myself included, have had that experience of going on a diet, feeling really motivated and excited, maybe losing a little bit of weight, thinking, oh, I've got it this time. I'll, I'll never go back to that again. And then the next thing you know, we're overeating or even binging and the weight comes back and we can't figure out. And we think, it's, we think we're a bad person. We mm. don't have willpower. But in truth, diets just don't work. We know that. We've had decades and decades of experience. We know lots and lots of people who've dieted, and most of us know very few people who have been successful long-term. We need to stop restricting and depriving, which is only causing more cravings and more overeating, and get back to our instinctive way of managing our eating the way we were born. Boy, that's... Sounds like a great, great plan. Let's uh, take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Michelle May. She uh, is the founder of the website Am I Hungry and also uh, author of the book Eat What You Love and Love What You Eat. We will come back and continue the journey on understanding your own hunger. We'll get into some of the signs we should be watching out for that is really our body telling us we're hungry or we're not hungry. Healthy. That's the goal here on the Matt Townsend Show. All of that up next. Welcome back, friends. On the phone with us is Dr. Michelle May, and uh, she has the website amihungry.com, also the author of the book Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat. And uh, on, her pro- on her website, she, she teaches people how to eat mindfully and, and does trainings, workshops, speeches. Today, we're honored to have you here with us, uh, Dr. Michelle May. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thanks. Glad to be here. So we tend to kind of get into 
La La Land when we're eating. We're not so mindful. We just numb out maybe uh, being entertained by what we're doing, but not by our food. What what are the cues we should be looking for that would actually tell us when we're hungry um, if we were if we were engaged and mindful? You know, it's funny, isn't it? Because we think and talk about food all the time, except while we're eating, and then we're thinking and talking about something else and doing something else. <laughs> so really, this idea of tuning in to our body and to the food can help us manage our eating and enjoy our eating even more. So one, one issue for people is to really notice when they're hungry and when they're full. So the easiest symptoms to identify are the ones that come from the stomach and from the blood sugar. Hmm. So when you're getting hungry, you might notice hunger pangs, little, little signals that, hey, better start thinking about eating soon. You might notice growling or rumbling or an empty hollow sensation in your upper belly area, right below your rib cage. Your blood sugar may start to fall, in which case you might notice that your focus starts to wane. Maybe you're getting a little irritable. We call that hangry, right? Yeah, totally. Or, or when you're really hungry, you might notice you're even shaky or getting a headache. So all of these signs are really our body telling us that we need food. Now, one of the mistakes that people make is when they get really, really hungry, all the way to maybe even that, that headachey kind of place, they think, oh, well, I'm really, really hungry. I need a lot of food. But what your body is really telling you is you're really hungry. You need to eat soon. The capacity of your stomach doesn't really change when you're really hungry. You don't hmm. need twice the amount of food. You just need to eat soon. Eat soon, not eat a lot. Exactly. That's exactly. isn't because it, it, it is, and then I've noticed when you're hungry, you might you know shovel it faster, so you're pushing Absolutely. it in faster, which is uh, problematic as well. Of course, and so this is the this is the the mindlessness piece. This is the automatic pattern that we get into. The, the problem is that when you're really, really hungry, your blood sugar is low and your brain is not getting the fuel that it needs to make conscious decisions. So it is important to check in with yourself regularly to notice whether you're getting hungry and not wait so long to eat that you're out of control and, and not making mindful decisions. But when it happens, and it will happen, it happens to all of us, then notice, oh, this is, this is one of those times that I could overeat if I check out. I need to be especially conscious now because I'm really hungry and my brain is offline. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like, and maybe this is kind of the dieting culture where we starve ourselves until we're useless, then we gorge until we're useless, then we feel guilty and bad, then we starve ourselves till we're useless. So we're always on this weird extreme pendulum. Precisely. I use that pendulum analogy quite often, Matt, because I think it really helps us to see that our goal is really somewhere in the middle. We're trying to catch ourselves before we get too hungry, but we want to be hungry enough to actually need the food and enjoy the food when we do and to stop when we're comfortable. One of the analogies I like to use for this is a thermostat. You know, when you have a thermostat in your house, or maybe a hotel room, you, you go, you set the thermostat on a comfortable range for you. You don't go over and check the thermostat all the time, but you trust that it's going to keep the room in a comfortable range. Well, hunger and satiety are like that. 
if you notice that you're getting hungry or you're starting to get uncomfortable, then that's your signal to make a decision about preparing food, sitting down to eat. But you don't want to eat so much that you move back into the other uncomfortable range. You don't want to, like a thermostat, make the room too hot or too cold. And so with food, it's very similar. Check in, notice how you're feeling. Because really, eating the right amount of food isn't about being good, it's about feeling good. And it doesn't feel good to eat so much food that you're stuffed and uncomfortable. And it, it doesn't always, you know, it, does, it doesn't feel good to have food running your life. Like it's the mm. all-consuming thought. That's right. That's right. We can trust our body to let us know when we need food. But again, and it's partly this dieting culture. It's partly this this fear of not getting enough because of our past dieting or other scarcity beliefs that really are not true in our culture these days. You know, we really need to just learn to trust our body and not be thinking about food 24-7, which raises the issue that we haven't even touched on, and that is all of the emotional eating, all the reasons that we use food to soothe ourselves, distract ourselves, entertain ourselves, all of the emotional reasons that we're using food instead. Talk about that. Uh, I mean, because some people, we may not even know you're doing it for emotional reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And again, that's why this, this question of am I hungry is a great place to start. Because if the answer is no, but you still feel like eating, then that's a good signal to you that there's something else that triggered it. And it could have just been something simple like the sight of food or smelling food or, or maybe a meal time, just sort of a habit. Does the, does the name Pavlov ring a bell? Absolutely, right. right. But there's also these other reasons. So maybe you're bored and you're just looking to eat to fill your time. And, and of course, eating is something to do. It's just that when you stop eating, you're bored again, and then you'll have to eat again. And so it's kind of a, a, a choice that, that doesn't really take care of the need very well. If you're stressed out and you reach for food, you might get that little hit of pleasure or relief, but it's very brief, and you would have to redose yourself to relieve the stress again. So that's why eating when you're hungry can be very satisfying, but eating for other reasons leaves you wanting more. And that's why so many of us will overeat when we're eating for reasons other than our true body's needs. Mm. And I mean, I'm assuming too, this could become uh, handed down, a tradition handed down by families. I mean, my family, are they're way into food and, you know, mm-hmm. we show it. But it's part of the problem is it's it, everything's about food. We sit around the food. We talk around the food and, right. you, and you enjoy the food, but you also enjoy mass amounts of it. That's right. My family is, is the same, Matt. That's how par- partly why I got into the situation and why I developed such a passion for this. But I don't think we need to swing in the other direction. There's that pendulum right. again of saying, oh, don't eat or only eat things that, you know, that are yucky. <laughs> you know, we're really, uh, the, my books are called Eat What You Love and Love What You Eat because I really believe that we need to learn to love food more, not less. And loving food more means that we respect it, we allow it to occupy the correct place in our lives, which is to fuel our bodies and have connection with our family. But when it's 
taking up so much time and energy and attention, that's too much. And it's taking away and stealing that time, energy, and attention from things that are more important, like our families and our work and, and giving back to our communities and other things that are much more important than thinking about food all the time. Mm, so true. And, um, and, and then if it's not thinking about food, it's thinking about burning off the food. So right. now I must so, eliminate the food I just ate. Yes, so that really essentially turns exercise into punishment for eating. And who would voluntarily choose punishment every day? Right. So we have that sort of double bind where we've turned food into the enemy and exercise into the punishment. And so, of course, people aren't going to sustain those kind of behaviors for very long. The human brain is designed to seek pleasure and and avoid pain. So if we're really going to find physical activity that we'll do on a regular basis, it has to be disconnected from the food. It's not about burning calories. It's about moving our bodies and energizing our bodies and making our bodies healthier, but not about burning calories. And it's really about eating in a way that fuels the life that we want to live. Boy, it's interesting because you may not you may think of exercise as a calorie burning tool and but it is kind of a counterintuitive psychology where mm-hmm. yeah, I only do it to be able to eat more um right. instead of actually deriving the pleasure that is inherent in exercise. That's right. That's right. And I think that if if truly we look at it, most of most of the people who enjoy exercise over the, the course of their life have found things to do that they really enjoy and they experience that pleasure, they experience that little adrenaline hit, they notice that their body moves more easily in the world. And so there's all these other, and as a physician, I, I promise you the health benefits to exercise are true whether you lose weight or not. Yet many people will stop exercising when they stop their diet or they will quit exercising if they don't lose weight. And in fact, the benefits are there regardless of your weight. People of all sizes benefit from moving their bodies. That's so true. Is, as, you, um, as you look at this and as we, as we kind of wrap it up, what advice would you give us immediately? Something we can take home today that would immediately you know, help us manage a little bit more the hungry, the, the, our sense of hunger and, and our ability to pay, maybe be more attuned to that? Well, I, I think it sounds overly simplistic, but I would just remind you the next time you feel like eating, just pause for a moment and check your fuel gauge. Am I really hungry? Or before you continue to eat, am I still hungry? And notice what's happening in your body. That will begin the process of tuning in and recognizing that there may be other reasons that you're eating that have nothing to do with what your body needs. Don't make food the enemy. It is your friend. However, it works a lot better when you eat it when you need it. So true. So true. Dr. Michelle May, thank you for your time and uh, your insight on this. Again, you can find out more about Michelle and her work on her website, amihungry.com. Also, go check out her book, Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat, and make sure you're pausing. I mean, just this whole idea of being mindful about your food, how does that go wrong? Just checking in? Boy, imagine how that would change your life if you were just paying attention to uh, your life as you were eating, as you were just engaging in life. 
Interesting stuff. We've got so much to cover. Next up, we're going to uh, continue the empty news, giving you some insight into a, a robbery suspect that may have made a big mistake leaving his keys at the scene. Stick, now, stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. And by the way, now after speaking with Michelle May about Are You Actually Hungry, it kind of makes Chili Dog Day, you know, kind of a downer. Nope. Still hungry. Still hungry for chili dogs. Happy Chili Dog Day to you all. Uh, Robbery suspect uh, in Yakima, Washington, uh, the police say he robbed a convenience store Sunday night, was arrested after leaving his car keys and his cell phone at the store. Whoops. Oopsie. Police say Lacey Bernard Anderson, 37, robbed a quick stop just after 9.30 p.m. on Sunday. Anderson told the clerk he was armed and reached for his waistband, but he did not show a weapon. According to court records, Anderson took about $180 from the register, but he left his car keys and his cell phone behind. I mean, it's a nice exchange. How do you leave your car keys behind, though, and not get away? Maybe that's what he was or reaching and for. and get away. Ooh, he, uh, maybe mm. he just got out to his car and then he's like, blasted! I'm going to need to call Uber. Oh, I'm missing my phone. (laughs) Darn it. Anyway, they said they found Anderson, who matched the robber's description, about two blocks south of the convenience store. Police said Anderson had no bills and denominations matching the cash taken from the store. Hmm. Oh, sorry. He did have bills. He spent them on a new phone. Yeah. (laughs) He had gone out and bought a new phone. He also, by the way, had an eight-inch steak knife concealed Mm. in his sock. That he was wearing. Oh, I, that I, that was just there when I put my foot in it. What? what is, did my kids leave that steak knife in my sock again? Don't you ever have like a pebble in your sock when you go to put it on? Well, I mean, who doesn't? It's a steak knife. That's right. Maybe Happens. he sells steak knives. Not a big deal. Uh, in the end, um, he had denied any involvement in the robbery. Uh, when they called his phone, though, they realized, hey, it just happened to be at the scene of the crime. And so did his car. And his car keys. Anyway, you got to watch out, folks. And if we've said it once, we've said it a million times on this show. If you're going to rob the, you know, a store, think ahead. Think ahead. That's actually what my grandma used to say. Did she? Yeah. What, how did she say it? She said when exactly it was word for word. Oh, if really? you're going to rob a store, think ahead. It's good. And did she say anything about a, a steak knife, an eight-inch steak knife in your sock? Because I yeah. noticed you carry one. If you feel something poking at your foot, you got to pull that steak knife out yeah. and throw it out. I love your grandma. She's so poetic. Poetic. Good stuff, folks. This is the stuff you don't get on any other show because they don't care about you quite as much as we do. It's called The Matt Townsend Show. We're here every day. We're not going anywhere. We'll be back. In fact, uh, up next, we are going to you know continue the journey for one more hour And we will be discussing mom's voice and the powerful effect it has on children. All of that straight ahead right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
Welcome, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So good to have you on board. Hope you're having a great day so far. It's hour number three of the program. If you happen to miss any of the other shows, get back. Check them out. iTunes, that's the place to download the podcast or tune in. You can do it there. Stitcher, go to BYURadio.org. Hey, go to the Apple Store and download the BYU Radio app for Apple or Android or iOS or Android. It's everywhere, folks. Welcome to the program. We've got a great uh, show lined up for you. Today we will be replaying an interview we did um, with a researcher about whose voice has the most powerful effect on children, mom or dad or radio show host or grandma? I'm going to say the narrator of Peppa Pig. Exactly. It's the narrator of Peppa Pig. The sound of candy clanking around in the jar we keep it in. That has the most power in my house. Does it? For for both of your children? Just my six-year-old. He's in the other room. Like it. I'm in the kitchen, try to be as quiet as possible as you open the trying container to sneak. You're trying to and sneak. you hear this, <gasps> and then just stampede into the kitchen. And he stands there and looks at you like you're going to give him some candy. So go away. Speaking funny. of that, I'm I'm starting to think maybe it was a mistake to uh, give out candy to my girls that come and visit me in my home office. Yeah, that was that wasn't smart. Because one of my daughters doesn't like the candy. My other daughter... Basically, just gets straight down to business. She walks in the door and she's like, Skittles, which it's, is funny because they're actually M&M's. She puts an order in? And she yeah, doesn't, she doesn't, even, she doesn't oh. even pretend like she's there to see me. And then I say, well, aren't you here to visit me? Yeah, visit. Candy. Come visit. On. Give me candy. Well, you know what you might want to do, guys, is listen to last hour when we learned about hunger and how to train yourself to notice when you're hungry. I can't even teach myself to do that. Good luck teaching my three-year-old to do that. Especially when Skittles are involved. See, for me, it's not Skittles. For me, it's Chili Dog. Because today's Chili Dog Day. I Chili Dog double dare you. It's the, uh, it's the day we celebrate the, the international classic of uh, the Chili Dog. Yes, you put a little dog in a bun and then you smother it in meaty chili numminess. And it doesn't matter where you are. You can call it the Michigan hot dog. You can call it Texas hot, Texas chili dog. Mm. Which, by the way, those are the that's what they call it in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania, is the Texas chili dog. Interesting. It seems not appropriate. Like it seems like New Jersey would have their own name. That or would, the Philly chili. That'd be like me going to Pizza Hut and ordering the Chicago deep dish pizza, right. which I believe they've done. It's yeah. been a campaign of theirs. I think so. It's it's a good campaign. Uh, so today we are celebrating the Chili Dog and, of course, James Taylor singing his song, Chili Dog. Oh, he's just got such a smooth voice. And you know it's because he just downed a Chili Dog. See, now when he sings Chili Dog, that makes me hungry for a Chili Dog. Does it? I just want more James Taylor. He just brings happiness. See, and because of him, I, I actually like rain and I like fire. Do you really? Boy, mm-hmm. he's brought a lot of things to life for you. Yeah. That's seriously good. Uh, by the way, today we will also be covering some more empty news, news you didn't even know you needed to know, information important for your growth, your development. Um, also, uh, we'll be, again, of course, covering – it's actually – sorry, I'm going to announce it. It's mom. Her voice is the voice that's most powerful effect on the child. Man. It's mom. You ruined it. Arthur, where are you? That mom. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. My yeah. dad would yell. No one would care. Mom would yell. Everyone would Matthew! Oh, yeah. When my mom is calling my name from a different yeah. aisle in the store, you better believe I'm listening and getting to her as soon as possible. And wasn't that the reason why they gave you a middle name or initial so that mom could elongate your name? <laughs> no, I think it was so that uh, when she was shouting out, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Simpson, the other Jeffrey Simpsons in the store weren't confused. <laughs> Every other Jeffrey yeah. Simpson. Because, yeah, there's, that's oh, a very it's popular Liam. name. It's Liam. That's not me. Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Listen, get over here. Quit touching that. <laughs> so many memories. Hey, we will get to that fun. Plus, of course, visiting our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, finding out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour, a little sports check in there, also our hero story, all of that straight ahead. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what is going on? Passengers at all U.S. airports will soon face new measures for screening electronic devices bigger than a cell phone, the AP reports. Security officers will ask travelers in regular lanes to take all larger devices out of their bags and put them in a bin by themselves. Similar to the screening of most travelers' laptops, officials say it gives x-ray screeners a clearer picture of the device. The changes won't apply to pre-check lanes. Transportation Security Administration said Wednesday the new procedure will go nationwide in the coming weeks and months. They don't say that it's also going to make lines longer and make the whole process worse. Boy, they keep trying to sell you that pre-check. They're looking for revenue. yeah. Yeah, it's extra money. If you want to get by this... Just Extra pre-check. Money. I mean, we've told you if you want to just get through all this easily, just pre-check. Homeland Security has been changing rules for electronics and international flights because of the threat of terrorists. Could hide bombs inside laptops and tablets. Now they're doing it here. It seems like there's going to be a day where you you will have to have like 12 bins of your own. Yeah. And then you just may as well not even pack. Just bring all of your stuff in laundry baskets and then pack it after you've gone through. And it's all just to discourage you from bringing it. So at this point, you'll just have to FedEx it to wherever you're going yeah, and get your laptop when you land. You're not already up to 12, uh, 12 little buckets? No. No. But I hmm. really don't like the people that are. Hmm. I don't know why. They just turn my stomach. Hmm. So look for Weird. that as you travel. A U.S. grand jury on Wednesday indicted a Russian man for allegedly helping hackers and drug traffickers launder a total of $4 billion using a digital currency exchange. The wow. indictment against Alexander Vinnik came after the Russian national was arrested in a small village in Greece on Tuesday following a joint investigation between the U.S. Justice Department and other federal agencies. It all involves Bitcoin and how that digital currency works Hold and their laundering Bitcoin, money. Russia. Yep. And Department of Justice. Maybe yep. this is why President Trump's so mad at Jeff Sessions. Maybe. Because he's getting Russia in trouble. Maybe. Who knows? Weird. Who knows? <laughs> I just, you know, we've talked about Bitcoin on the show. Yeah. This was a huge Bitcoin operation, laundering money, moving drugs. It's a huge bit of coin. Yes. Bit of coin. Sean Spicer tendered his resignation as White House press secretary last Friday. Mm-hmm. By the way, now known as the luckiest Trump uh, team member. Calling his time in, in his position an honor and a privilege. While his stay on, yesterday he was in New York meeting with uh, several TV networks. ABC, oh, NBC, boy. CBS, Fox. He was all over the place. He should be the next Judge Judy. He'd be great. He Judge. also had a meeting that page six, at a, that's the gossip pages in New York, um, reported with Dancing with the Stars. Oh, no. Because no, they want him no, 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 on no, their no. show. No, no, no. Spicy dance. Salsa dancing. No. <laughs> he put the spice back. He said, Dancing with the Stars. He said when contacted, no comment. Oh, come on, Sean. Is that what you want to see? No. No? I don't no, think anybody no, wants no, to see that. No, 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 no. And finally, we have a solar eclipse on the horizon, so yeah. to speak. Just look at it. 
The lower it'll be the first total solar eclipse in the lower 48 states since 1979. Wow, I do believe I remember the one in 1979. There was a partial eclipse I saw when I was a kid. Yeah, I remember. And I remember them saying, don't look at it. Yeah, Use don't this. stare. And that, that's really kind of the, 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 the pieces here. So by this LA Times article, yeah. they have a countdown clock. 25 days, one hour, 54 minutes, and 20 seconds. I, I think you got that mixed up. Isn't that the Thor Ragnarok release date? It's pretty close. Okay. Oh, Actually, boy. no, that one's in November. <laughs> um, so NASA has put out some warnings. You're not supposed to look at this thing. No. It'll burn your eyes. It'll fry you. So what they're saying is... There, you can get eyewear. You can get some special lenses that you can watch. They're, they're fairly inexpensive, depending yeah. on where you get them. But the problem is, if you go to Amazon right now, mm-hmm. Amazon.com, there's all kinds of people providing solar eclipse glasses. Yeah. Uh, do you trust that? That's the problem, is a lot of them are not the glasses you need. They're just something they're trying to sell. And, and they look cool, and they're called solar eclipse. Right, and they're nothing. They're right. nothing that's going to help you. So they give you some tips. They need to have a certification information with the designated, and they give a number, ISO 12312-2 International mm. Standards. So yeah. there's some, you need to look official. Have the manufacturer's name and address printed somewhere on the product. Okay. That, that's helpful, because you, yeah. you feel like if they're giving you that information, then they're... Want, not wanting you to contact them with a lawsuit, you know. Right. So there would be some information there. Uh, not to be used if they are older than three years or have scratched or wrinkled lenses, and do not use homemade filters. Really, don't take sunglasses and go. Well, these are these are like Drive them these on. have UV protection. These are polarized. I'll look at the sun through the. Don't do that. What if what if you just wear sunscreen while you're looking at the no. solar eclipse? You need to put sunscreen on your eyes. Yeah, just a, just a nice haze of. When I was a kid, my mom went to the planetarium and got these little film, yeah. and we put it into uh, we cut out a hole and cut yeah. in uh, what uh, uh, like a car- shoebox, shoebox, or she did it on some some construction paper uh-huh. type of thing. What a good mom! And you're able to hold it up, and we look through, and you could see the mm-hmm. right. the sun and the moon all that. Or you poke a hole in a piece of paper and turn your back to it, it, hold it up, and you can see it on the cement. It was so cool. And you see like a piece of the sun cut out. It's really my cool. friend's dad had we- a welding hood. Because he, oh, he'd do so that'll do it. And that'll do it. And we use that, too, also to look up. So there's things you can do. Just don't go out and stare at the sun. No. Because people will. And we'll have those stories soon after. Right. When, and when then, come and, and again, it sounds like a frat party. But um, let's not do that. We don't want to tell that story <laughs> where somebody burnt their, you know, their did, eyes. Did you use the, the paper with the sun shining through the hole to uh, burn ants? No, but you probably could. <laughs> Yeah. This it says the, this out of the LA Times article. The sun is 400 times wider than the moon. Wow. And 400 times further away from the earth than the moon. As a result from our vantage point here on the ground, during a total eclipse they appear to be the same size in the sky. Not weird. Oh, yeah. the sun loves that. That's like the sun wearing black to make it look more slim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the sun, the sun goes the sun goes emo. The sun has a little bit of a weight problem. I get a little weirded out when the sun goes all dark. I don't know why. I, I just the Bible, I think. They, they say you'll hear crickets and you'll have like animals will go to sleep because they think it's nighttime and it's dusk. So they're going to go to sleep at that point. Man. Now, different parts of the country will have a full view. Yeah. There's like a path right through the center of the country. Um, other parts, most of the country will have a partial eclipse. Here where we're located, we'll have about a 75% eclipse. You know, um, mostly, we, mostly 70, eclipsed. Not that we can look at it. 
Well, uh, Jeff had a total eclipse of the heart <clears throat> just last week. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. With my good friend Bonnie. Mm-hmm. That yeah. was a good time. I mean, yeah. for some, not for you. Sorry. I felt bad. I wish there was more I could have done. Matt, I need <sighs> you tonight. No, don't don't sing anymore. <laughs> that just got awkward. Hey, um, what do you think um, Pluto thinks about this whole – all this talk about the solar eclipse? Right. And you said this was in 25 days? Yeah. Our friend Mo I Pluto. I think that's when his big fight is scheduled is in 25 days. I wonder oh, if he knows. Oh, he doesn't. So he's going to totally be eclipsed. I think everybody else is going to be focusing on the eclipse. Nobody's going to be watching the big fight. <laughs> One tip. Yeah. If you want to look at the eclipse, don't use a mirror. Yeah. Don't hmm. like try to sh- like look over your shoulder. Because you're not of... actually looking at it. Right. You're, you're looking at it through the mirror. That apparently is an internet rumor that you could use a mirror and look at the reflection and it won't hurt you as much. And they go, no, it'll burn your eyes out. That's called nature's laser. <laughs> it's just a mirror trick. Um, okay, so that's that's good news. I mean, at least at least we now know, right? Hey, um, speaking of mirrors and uh, the, the solar eclipse, bed bugs, fireworks used uh, to, and fireworks are used to vandalize a Middletown property. A man says an Ohio man's residence and car were damaged by vandals who used fireworks through bed bugs into his house, according to a police report. Now people are armed with bed bugs. Gerald Moore told officers Friday morning that he heard something that sounded like his window being broken and fireworks going off. He discovered a firework had been ignited under his car and a broken window uh, and, and I guess broke a window. Moore said he noticed that bed bugs had been dumped through the window. After hearing a noise at the front door, Moore said he also found numerous bed bugs outside. A planter and floodlights were broken and a no trespassing sign was torn down, according to reports. So somebody is out there infecting people with bed bugs. Scary. That's kind of a weird crime. And how do you know that they're not your bed bugs? Hmm. Gerald. Have you ever had bed bugs? Mm-hmm. I never have. Really? I mean, I've had bugs. Don't get me wrong. I had them in Russia. We had to move. Did you really? Mm-hmm. So then what does one do? Gather a bottle of bed bugs and then hunt people down and slowly infect their homes with bed bugs? Sounds weird. Something's not right there. I think Gerald is looking for an out. I don't know how the bed bugs got in. The so insurance companies it. might want to take a closer look at that one. I'm all I'm saying. But can you imagine... Really, if somebody was trying to chase him down with bed bugs, that's just not fair. That's not nice. Not to mention, you tore down his no trespassing sign. Now he's going to have to get another one of those. And you don't want a dog, because then you'll have fleas and bed bugs. It's a tangled web. It's a tangled, tangled web. So um, I don't know what you'd want more of. Um, I, I know one of the things – I don't know if you heard about this. There's apparently a rare um, baseball card. Did you hear about this? There are quite a few rare baseball cards actually. Oh, really? Yeah. You got your Babe Ruth. You got your uh, Hank Aaron. You got your uh, – Have you ever heard of Terry Doolin? Mm, 
See the one that came with the grape-flavored bubblegum? No, I don't think so. Terry Doolin had one of the most colorful and grandiose collections of rare Chris Bryant prospect cards on the planet. You ever heard of Chris Bryant? Uh, no, I've heard of Bryant Gumbel. Yeah. So Doolin here stood to gain quite a bit of money on the side by showcasing the collection of Chris Bryant uh, at the 2015 Fan, uh, Fanatics Authentic Sports Spectacular. During the convention, another unnamed collector introduced Doolin to a card that begged to be added to his already sizable collection. Uh, in a 2013 Bowman Chrome Chris Bryant Black Wave autographed card. Now, Chris Bryant isn't a well-known player. No. But apparently, he's still going to be able to get like 20 grand for this card. Who is this guy? Who is this crazy guy? Not the not the collector, but who is this player? Well, you don't know Chris Bryant. You ought to ask uh, Spencer and Jerem. I'm going to. I'm going to ask the experts if they know anything about it. Um, so we will get to the uh, mystery about the Chris Bryant card. If you don't know who he is, shame on you. Come on. But we will get to that mystery in a bit. When we come back, we are going to be talking about um, whose voice really matters most to children and their brains. It's amazing, the power of the mom's brain. I'm guessing whichever one gives them what they want. And it might be mommy. Up next, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. There's nothing uh, earth-shattering about uh, the idea that a, a mother's voice is an important sound source for kids. And... Um, and so there's no new new ground being broken on that front. Any mom will will moms that. know that. Any kid knows that, moms right? Know that, and anyone who's observed the, the interactions between a mom and her child, which is pretty pretty difficult to avoid uh, noticing, uh, will will be able to kind of attest to how important a mom's voice is, and how important mom is, of course, to to kids. Um, and so you know, so that that's not novel at all. But what is novel is Surprisingly, despite you know m- many years of uh, research um, on the brain in in kids and adults and humans, um, no one had done the study to look at um, what what brain circuits are specifically engaged in kids when they hear their mother's voice compared to unfamiliar voices, and so um, and so that was the study we designed and performed. Um, and that's why we're, we're talking. Here is it, that. is it, it's interesting because as I sit there and I think, um, I, I can maybe tell my kids something, um, and try to motivate them. Other yeah. people can try to motivate them, but what happens for some reason when mom starts talking or mom gets serious, uh, does it calm the kid down? Does it, does it, does it just go deeper into their brain? What, what's happening chemically in the brain when mom's talking? Yeah, right. So, um, so what I can tell you about is what particular you know brain circuits are engaged when a child hears mother's voice, and um, and and what our, what our study showed is that um, compared to unfamiliar voices, so these are uh, control voices that we also uh, played to the children while they had their brain scan. So, as you might imagine, during the brain scan, children are intermittently and randomly hearing either their mom's voice interspersed with uh, 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 unfamiliar female voices, 
saying the exact same thing. Yeah. These very brief, and importantly, these are very brief sound samples, less than a second of, of speech in each of these utterances. And so, and what we found is that um, when a child hears mother's voice, um, uh, a whole slew of interesting brain circuits become active, and they include parts of the brain not only associated with hearing, but also parts of the brain that are associated with processing reward. Um, and there's a very kind of important brain circuit that, that's associated with reward processing. So, for example, whenever you hear your favorite music or if you eat chocolate or something pleasurable, this, this circuit in the brain becomes active. Well, what's interesting is that in a child's brain, um, when a child hears uh, his or her mother, this this pleasure circuit, this reward circuit in the brain becomes active. Oh, wow. And so, so that was novel yeah. and, and interesting. Uh, in addition, other parts of the brain associated with emotional processing, such as um, there's a part of the brain called the amygdala, um, and this part of the brain also becomes active when hearing mom's voice. And also, finally, kind of the last interesting tidbit, which was very surprising, which was face processing parts of the brain. So these are parts of the brain that are important for discriminating between different people's faces. Also became active when hearing mother's voice. Now the catch is that these kids weren't seeing any pictures during the brain scan. They were only hearing their mother's voice. They, They saw there was just a blank screen in front of them for all of the sound samples that they heard. There's no visual stimulus. And, uh, nevertheless, when they hear uh, their mother's voice, these space processing parts of the brain become active. And so it's, you know, and we, we think that they may be, you know, this may be some kind of neural form of uh, visual imagery for mother when hearing the, their voice. Yeah, and maybe, yeah, they're starting to look for that face. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. yeah that's what, the idea. Well, I mean, in a, I mean, it seems like a lot of this, like the amygdala kicking in. Because that's kind of, isn't that the fight, flight, or, you know, mate kind of part of the brain? Yeah, so this is an important part of the brain for all kinds of kind of emotional processing and fear processing. The amygdala is associated with a number of these kinds of processes. And, uh, and, and it's also an important part of the brain associated with just kind of interpreting emotional information and processing different kinds of effective information in our environment. And uh, and here and here we are, just hearing this very very brief sample of uh, mother's voice again, less than one second of mother's voice is able to, um, you know, activates all of these different brain regions hmm. uh, simultaneously. Um, is there any difference with when they hear dad's voice? <laughs> yeah, great question. We've gotten that we've gotten that question a lot actually. I bet. Uh, and and the answer is we don't know. Uh, we didn't study that, you know, mother, you know, in the, in the uh, behavioral literature and the developmental literature, really mother has this kind of privileged spot in the, in the literature, at least, you know, uh, in the sense that people have been studying for a long time. For example, we know that, that, that fetuses in utero can, can discriminate and identify their mother's voice, believe it or not, when they, when they measure heart rates, fetal heart rates, um, they can determine that a that the fetus is able to hear and identify their mother's voice compared to other voices. So there's this kind of long right. and storied history of mother. And so, and while of course we're interested in all kinds of different 
biologically important voices in a child's life, including mothers and fathers and caregivers and teachers and all these people that are so important to kids in their development, um, we, we, we aimed at kind of the arguably one of the sweet spots, which is mother, just because there's such a big mm. history of yeah. studying this. It's so rich there. I don't know. If I were going to bet what you what, where the kid goes in his brain when we are talking about fathers, I'm going to bet he'll go to the video game section <laughs> and and the overstimulation Sports section. section. possibly. That's right. Exactly. I know that's where, where my kids' brains would probably go. No, so. totally. Mine would, too. Mine would know that they're probably going to be – that a ball is going to be coming at them fairly quickly. And because yeah, right. <laughs> I have five boys, and so the minute they they think of dad, they're like, "Uh oh, there's going to be a ball. Watch for the ball." That's right. Um, That's what else? What else did you learn? Because this is it's it's pretty telling that our brains within one second you found right. So within one second, a kid can can determine if it's his mom or not instantly, and then it goes to that part of the brain, which which shows almost how automatic a lot of our processes are. Yeah, absolutely. That was kind of one of the really surprising parts of the result. We we did not anticipate such dramatic results for such a brief stimulus. Right. And so it really does kind of reflect how how uh, automatically and how quickly and efficiently the brain um, identifies this important sound source and then gives it access to all of these different brain systems. You know, we think that many of these brain systems may be important for learning. And so, you know, if the brain is able to quickly identify the sound source and then give access to this particular sound source to brain regions that are important for learning, well, that seems like it would be adaptive and very important for child development and learning. Yeah. And so, yeah, it is really kind of, we were really surprised at how efficiently it appears the brain is able to um, to access all these different brain systems. It's powerful. Another really, another really interesting part of the results was linking these particular brain results to uh, to behavior. Um, and uh, do you mind if I talk about? You that know, what, let's do this. Actually, let's come back because okay, I also want to get into the autism kind of side and the oh, autism yeah. spectrum, um, which yep. was a, a part of your research. We're speaking with Dr. Daniel Arthur Abrams uh, from uh, Northwestern University about his research about what happens to a child's brain when they hear mom's voice. Stick with us, folks. Interesting stuff coming up. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. If you've ever had that, uh, your mom call your name as a kid and you immediately froze, maybe went into that little, ah, I'm in trouble moment and your heart rate raced, it might be because uh, kids have a special connection with that voice. When they hear it instantly, they recognize it. And uh, there are amygdala fires in one example that we've heard, and which kind of turns in some of the you know emotional management, fight or flight needs kick in. But Dr. Uh, Daniel Arthur Abra- Abrams is talking about his research that he's performed at Northwestern University as a, an auditory cognitive neuroscientist. Um, and we're honored to have you back, Dr. Abrams. Thank you so much for being with us. 
All right, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you were talking about uh, the fact that when this, when they hear mom's voice, it 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 kind of it impacts almost an immediate behavior set. It prepares them to behave. Is that right? Well, I guess it's the way we think about it. We don't we don't know that for certain, but you know the way that the the results kind of turned out, it suggests that that kids that it kind of readies kids for lots of things that may be important, such as learning, um, and it kind of prepares a- accesses different brain circuits that may be important for learning and social information processing. Hmm. And so I guess when you hear mom's voice, something important is going to happen, probably, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and this is maybe the brain's way of getting ready for that important information that she could be passing on to you. It, yeah, it's interesting, which, is, which would be super important for survival. Right. Like yeah, connect to mom. Absolutely. Mom, mom could give you something, some, some super important information uh, and, and you need to be ready for it. Right. That's interesting. Man, I, I hope you got to go do the dad research soon because, know. you know, if we don't have that going for us, then we do need to all start listening more to mom. Absolutely. You know, we've, we've, we've had that question so many times and, and it's actually not an immediate thing that we thought we would study, but we've, we've had so many questions about it. As soon as we kind of get sufficient funding to yeah. do it, that is something we'll definitely uh, turn our attention to. Another question has to do with um, adoptive mothers and, and other kind of caregivers huh. that, that often raise kids and uh, from a very early age, and which is another very important question. And the question there would be, is there something special about a mother who carries the child versus uh, you know, a caregiver or a mother who... Um, who does not, you know, who, who adopts a child. Yeah. And so it's another kind of interesting and relevant question. And I know another thing that you did pull out of your uh, current research was um, be- about social communication, because this is about social communication. And if a child has a language and a communication, a social communication impairment, maybe like being on the autism spectrum, what, what does that do with the child? Did you get into that research? Well, a little bit. Um, so, we in this study that we published that we're that we're talking about, we, we only studied uh, kids, neurotypical kids. These are kids that are that don't have any kind of diagnosed um, uh, uh, clinical issues, such as autism or dyslexia or other kinds of uh, brain-related um, uh, clinical issues. So, these are these are your kind of generic neurotypical kids, and so. And what's interesting is that um, just like any other cognitive skill, like reading or mathematics, typical kids fall somewhere on a spectrum of normal abilities, right? You know, some kids are just kind of better readers than other kids, and and some kids are better at math than other kids. But all of them, even when they're all kind of normal, uh, and, and this is the case, there's a spectrum. Well, this is also the case for social function. Some kids are, and when I talk about social function, I'm talking about kids' ability to relate to one another and communicate with one another, which is kind of separate from reading skills and yeah. language skills. Yeah. This is about relating and understanding each other. Um, and and so just like these other cognitive abilities, uh, normal, you know, typically developing kids fall on a continuum for social abilities. Some kids are able to relate with other kids better than others, right? And, yeah. and they, they just have these kind of natural social skills. 
And what we found in our results is that um, those kids that had superior social abilities showed stronger brain connectivity when hearing mother's voice. Oh, wow. And, and so it, it kind of reflects, so here's, we kind of think about it as like a neural fingerprint for, uh, for, in, for kind of superior social abilities. Mm-hmm. So again, it kind of, these kids that, that have these, that, that are really social creatures, very the kind of most social creatures, have this kind of brain signature where they, um, uh, for hearing important voices. Oh, wow. Wow, that's, that could be huge. That's that's a and then another one we got to eventually figure out and maybe you've done this is what happens to a mom's brain when she hears her child's cry or her child talk. Yeah, actually, you know, surprisingly, this, that end of the research is much further along. Oh, is we it? Do we haven't done this yet? But other people have studied um, parents hearing children. Yeah, which is interesting because I feel like society is so kind of child focused that the these studies on the child's brain would have happened before the studies on the parents' brains, but actually it's been the other way around. Huh. That um, that these studies have been done in parents and actually uh, and, and and also in fathers, and um, and what's interesting is that basically the same set of brain regions oh, that come together light up th- th- as as in our kids. Oh my heavens! Voice. So it's like these. I mean, it's, I think what we've identified, and I don't, I don't know this for certain, but this is just my hypothesis. But what we've identified is kind of an all-purpose, um, important voice kind of pattern in yeah. our brain. Yeah, oh, interesting. Exactly. Oh, that's and fantastic. If you're a parent, if you're a parent, these things become active when you hear your kid. When you're a kid, we're, pathways um, are, turn on for when you hear your parents. Yeah, it's awesome. I think, and we're wired. It sounds like wired to to get these connections to make them happen. Well, Doctor Daniel Arthur Abrams, thank you so much for your great work. Keep it up and keep us uh, posted. We're going to take a break, friends, and come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. See what happens to our brains when we're listening to them. They always go crazy. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Yes, folks, it's that time uh, to get back to the ball game. And who better to follow up with on any form of baseball or sports than our good buddies at Spencer and Jeremy at BYU Sports Nation? Hello, gentlemen. Are you What's there? Up? What's up, man? Hi, Matt. How you guys doing? We're good, brother. Okay, Five you know, in advance. Do you know why we're playing that song? Because sports. Because last night. You both had ball games, and we wanted to immediately get back and check out how your games went. Spencer, how did your team do? We won. Woo! Four yeah. to two. Four to two. On slow pitch softball game. Slow two. pitch softball. Hey, sometimes defense is awesome. And that was a, a four to two on game on field number two. By the way, correct. Field number two. And uh, Jerem, how did you do? We beat the top seed in the upper division. Ten to five. Mm-hmm. Ah, ten to five. Sounds so like we we are playing each other. When? I don't know when the next game is. We are playing each other. Do you really? I'm probably going to charge the mound. <gasps> this will be great. With is Spencer my bat. is, and I hope Spencer's pitching. 
No, I'll be in center field. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to run all right the Right where you center. should be. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna, you're going to. With my bat. Jeremy's going to charge center field. It is the yeah. longest charge, by the way, you can make in baseball. <laughs> that is that is quite a charge. So, boy, maybe we ought to really send some of our uh, reporters to, we might to this game. We might televise it on uh, BYU TV. I think we should. The, we might televise it on Facebook Live. Yes. That's a great idea. Facebook on Periscope Live. on on Meerkat. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Meerkat. Yeah, <laughs> I, that, that, it went so fast. I don't remember. Um, it came and went. Hey, do you remember yesterday we had a big conversation about um, branding and how uh, OSU and Oregon State and Oklahoma State University—they're all vying for OSU's title. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's a question for you. And then I don't know if you remember we talked about how BYU—they always use the Y—and Yale University—they use the Y. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found a video that was on um, what's it called? The, the what? What's it's on the? <laughs> it was on the interweb. It was on Google Video. It was on. No, I got to get it right. It's on the funny feed uh, highlights feed that everybody has on Instagram. But it shows, and so I posted it. So if you guys could go find my Twitter at uh, Doctor Matt Show, okay. I need you to look at. This man, he takes a little bit of a fall. He's 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 joking. He's he's making fun of his wife's workout, and he's behind her doing a workout too. And he falls, kind of hits his head, and his hat flies off, and it has a Y on it. So I need you two, in your professional opinion, uh, to determine. Representing, okay. Is oh, it a yeah. BYU? Oh, I've seen this. Is it a BYU person, or is it uh, is this person from Yale University? It's Nike, so I'm guessing it's. That looks like the block Y. That looks like uh, something in Vineyard. <laughs> yeah, he falls basically That's... off the counter. And there's a child to the right, so yeah. I'm guessing it's BYU. I'm well, going, look I'm up, going. look up her account. Ah. Oh. And she'll, let's see. Well, look oh. at... Look LDS, at... Mama of Fitness Entrepreneur. Okay, BYU. there you go. Yeah. Okay, so he's representing the Y really well, and he throws the hat out there really as he's... Really well? I mean, well, I mean, he's, he's, he's now, he's, he's taking a nap, I think. <laughs> Yeah, he's, oh. he's taking a nap. He hit hard. But that also tells you, don't make fun of your wife when she's working out, right? Seems... Was he making fun of her or just trying to video bomb? Well, he's probably video bombing and doing a little, like, exercise that then he became unseated oh. and then landed on his tailbone and cracked his head. Oh. So anyway, uh, just wanted to throw that out there because you guys always, like, have perfect examples of um, – BYU athleticism, I thought I'd show you one example that maybe wasn't so perfect. And she knew it immediately. Yeah, she knew he's she being could silly. see him in the background. Yeah. And by the way, way to figure out if they're from BYU or not. And you probably even know where they live. They're probably in your neighborhood, your ward. Um, anyway, uh, so. That I don't have. It's your <laughs> oh, brother from ow. another mother. The more I watch it, I'm like, it's less funny and more like, oh, ow, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the first time I it's like. I hope that dude's okay. Does he have stitches? I mean, I don't does he know. Have a concussion? But he did take the hat off and threw it so we could represent the Y. That was neat. Um, what's going to be on your show? You're still going to do your show uh, today, right? Uh, today actually is the day where we will. Nope, just kidding. We're You're not doing the show begin. today. Today fall camp begins, Sweet. but it's still the summer, so that makes no sense. But we will tell you uh, our coverage plans of fall camp live Facebook uh, lives because Facebook Live is live. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, live tonight. Uh, we'll show you Mo Longy putting on his helmet for the first time and getting what sized shoes. Ooh. Were his cleats? 700. Yeah, what Roughly. size of I'm going cleat and... Well, we, 16. We know the helmet had to be special order, but what size of cleat does a 6'7", 400... 
40 uh, ish 16 plus wide pound guy wear yeah it's okay well listen well, we'll be the fall camp MVP. Blaine Fowler will join us to weigh in on that. We always <laughs> hand out the fall camp MVP, so we're going to predict who we think that will be. That's good. Mo Longy has 450 to 1 odds to win fall camp MVP. Roughly. <laughs> Plus the newest 10 and 10. I'll tell you the top 10 teams BYU faces. Where does Utah fit on that list? Holy cow. Yeah. Locked and loaded. Plus, by the way, and many uh, that maybe aren't at BYU Broadcasting don't know this, apparently there, we're playing a, um, a, a, a BYU-sanctioned drinking game um, with your show. It's a water hydration motivation challenge where uh, – have you heard about this, you guys? At BYUB? Yeah. The wellness thing? Every time uh, – so everyone can come watch the Sports Nation show and uh, – Every time, I guess, you guys make certain comments, people have to take a sip of water every time you say certain key words. That actually would sound fun. Like, BYU should be one. Yeah. That's for, I bet we say it Yeah, because that would just keep everybody hydrated. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it, I think it has, actually is the first drinking game ever supported by BYU, the university, and broadcasting because it's a water hydration I'm thinking challenge. Drinking game could be rephrased. Yeah, but we can look at it. It's that. a hydration game, really. <laughs> there you go. A hydration. It's game. about getting hydrated. Yes. But a um, wellness game. It's a. By the way, they will also be providing pretzels. So it's not just water anymore. It will be pretzels and water. Pretzels. Ooh. So make sure that you guys get the list of words and use them as many times as you can. Right? We will do we our need, best. We need you to get us the words. How could I? We don't know what they are. I might have to text them to you. Do it. That might be cheating. Is it cheating, though? It don't matter if you're black or white. <laughs> what if all of a sudden... The, hey, everyone... by the way, my sister, who lives in uh, North Carolina, Raleigh, she was texting me. She's like, hey, I'm listening to the Matt Townsend show. It's a great show. She's a smart lady. But that, it was like, your conversation's funny, and I'm like, that's happening right now. We're doing She's that like, as what? we speak. You're talking right now, and you're talking to me? She just sent me a picture of it. Blew her mind. Serious. It just it done blown. It done blew her mind. So what up, Whitney? Whitney, how's Mr. North Carolina? Whitney. That's pretty cool. See, that also tells you people are watching and listening. That's right, right there. They're sort of watching. Okay, yeah. um, we'll get you all the cheats on the uh, hydration motivation game. Not a drinking game. Word. The hydration <laughs> game. Okay, guys, have a great show. Knock him dead. You are locked and loaded. I'm telling you, these guys are highly, highly trained professionals. Um, really, uh, you got to listen. Four and a half minutes away, you'll get nothing but joy and pleasure from their show. Uh, also, by the way, just a little revisit on an early, a, a story we did earlier. I think it was in hour number one of the program. NFL star is now looking for his $100,000 diamond earring. And I've told Jeff this a million – I mean I've said it once. I've said it a million times. Don't wear your bling when you get in the lake or the pool, by the way. Here's another uh, bit of wisdom. What? Don't spend $100,000 on jewelry. Great point. It's a great point. Invest. Invest. Invest in yourself. Yeah. Real estate. Buy real estate. So the NFL star um, lost his uh, diamond earring at the bottom of Georgia Lake. According to the AP, Atlanta Falcons star wide receiver Julio Jones lost it when he hit a, um, a wake while uh, – I guess when he hit a boat wake and then took a spill while jet skiing. So if you are in need of money, head to Lake Lanier, um, which is about 50 miles outside of Atlanta, and then just start snorkeling. 
You'll have to snorkel because you'll have to get to the bottom of the lake. So what's the reward for finding this? Well, the reward would be the diamond. You'd find a $100,000 diamond earring. But he's not saying, give, uh, find the diamond and I'll give you $10,000. Well, he could say it all he wants. But if you find that diamond, you're not going to turn it in. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a way to give back to the people of Atlanta. Now everybody's diving and trying to find it at the bottom of the lake, hoping to capture you know that little glimmer, that little reflection of jewelry off the bottom. Again, don't, don't invest in the jewelry. To me, it's always weird that they're wearing it while they're playing on the field. You could, you could lose your ear. Some fish has already swallowed that thing whole. That means somebody's going to reel in that fish and bada boom, bada bing. It's not just, you know, a 10-inch trout. It's a $100,000 diamond. That is a sweet little – ooh, maybe that's how pearls come to be. People lose their little pearl earrings and the next thing you know – you know what, though? I think them in some oyster. I think this is a catch and release lake. Uh, so we may never find it if a fish has indeed swallowed it whole. Won't that be crazy in 20 years? Because you know a fish would be attracted to it. In 20 years, somebody pulls a whatever, a catfish out of 